Pandemic restrictions for asylum seekers are set to expire tonight. Communities along the border are seeing huge crowds as migrants line up to apply for authorized status in the United States. Our story is coming up on this Thursday, May 11th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Lisa Mullins also ahead this hour. The end of the COVID-19 public health emergency is here, but COVID is not over for everyone. It's been a year since a Palestinian-American woman was killed reporting on an Israeli raid in the West Bank. Israel never prosecuted anyone, and her family is still seeking accountability. Also ahead, Bob Mondella reviews Penelope Cruz's latest film, a portrait of an Italian family in the 1970s. It's 401 News Headlines and the forecast are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. U.S. Border Patrol is bracing for the arrival of a historically high number of migrants, many of them seeking asylum, hours before Title 42 expires. That's the pandemic-era public health order the Trump and Biden administrations used to deter illegal migration. Tens of thousands of people, including some from as far away as Africa and China, have been gathering at Mexico's border with the U.S. You have to sit down. Volunteers have been trying to keep order as they distribute food to the crowd through spaces in the border fence. Volunteer Nina Douglas describes a few of the most urgent needs. Seeing the need for everything from diapers and baby food to feminine hygiene products. But what folks are most anxious about is cold. What they most want are blankets for warmth, food and water. Meanwhile, the president of Mexico says he has mobilized troops to the border. NPR's Ada Peralta reports the leader has given orders not to use force. Title 42 was a pandemic-era policy that allowed for the immediate expulsion of many migrants, including those seeking asylum. Its end means more migrants have amassed at the U.S. southern border. President Andres Manuel López Obrador accuses Republican lawmakers of hoping for violence at the border, so he has sent troops to, quote, avoid provocations. We have to be vigilant, he said, to avoid violence. While Title 42 is ending, other restrictions on asylum seekers will take effect. Mexico has agreed to continue taking non-Mexican migrants deported from the U.S. The two countries hope that will discourage further migration. Eero Pralta, NPR News, Mexico City. The CIA says it is stepping up efforts to deal with sexual misconduct cases at the spy agency. As NPR's Greg Myrie tells us, this comes in the wake of several recent allegations. At least three women at the CIA have reportedly gone to the House Intelligence Committee this year to allege sexual harassment or assault. A lawyer says they took the action because they were discouraged by the way their agency was handling complaints. A senior CIA official, speaking on condition of anonymity, acknowledges the agency needs to improve its handling of such cases. Quote, We know we have work to do, said the official, who declined to say how many allegations were currently being investigated. The CIA also announced Dr. Talita Jackson, who's handled sexual misconduct cases for the Navy, will be joining the CIA in a similar role. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. 
The Dow Jones Industrial Average closes down 221 points or more than half a percent, ending the day at 33,309. The Nasdaq was up 22. S&P was down 7. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Boston Planning and Development Authority is scheduled to vote this evening on a plan to convert a Dorchester hotel into apartments for people who have no homes. Four city councilors and neighborhood groups are opposed to the Pine Street Inn's proposal to turn the Comfrey Inn on Morrissey Boulevard into studio apartments. The Pine Street Inn's Barbara Trevison says prospective tenants would have to be 62 or older and need to undergo background checks. They do sign along a lease, and there are, just like in any lease, there are certain expectations, and, um, you know, we will work with them to have a successful experience. Opponents say they worry the project might lead to crimes that are associated with a homeless encampment in the area of Massachusetts Avenue and Melania Cass Boulevard in Boston. Governor Maura Healy's appointees to the MBTA Board of Directors are asking questions about the authority's finances. Former Lynn Mayor and new board member Thomas McGee wants to look at 20 years of financial data on budget shortfalls. The MBTA's next budget has a $366 million deficit. McKee was told by staff that the T is still carrying as much as $1 billion in debt from the big dig. Good news for people who commute back and forth from Cape Cod. All lanes on the Sagamore Bridge are reopening after they were restricted and had been since March. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers announced today that construction along the span is now complete, two weeks ahead of schedule. And some riders waiting for a bus in Boston can now access free digital reading material from the Boston Public Library. The new program will help riders enjoy audiobooks and electronic reading material during their commute. This week, blue decals with a QR code for riders to scan were posted at 20 bus stops across the city. Pretty balmy out there still. 80 degrees now. Some sunshine alternating with clouds and showers. Tonight, partly cloudy and warm, only falling to the mid-50s. And for tomorrow, sunshine and clouds again. Maybe some afternoon rain. Strong winds could break 80 degrees once again. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 407. WBUR supporters include the Cy Sims Foundation. Since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at SciSimsFoundation.org. On a Thursday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. The end of the pandemic health order Title 42 is hours away. Cities along the southwest border have been preparing for months for this day. In El Paso, Texas, hundreds of migrants seeking asylum have been lining up at the border, waiting to turn themselves in to Border Patrol agents. Angela Kacherga with member station KTEP joins us now from El Paso. Angela, tell us the scene there now in El Paso where you are. Well, Sasha, I was at the border where people are waiting, and I saw the process unfold. Border Patrol agents opened a gate in the big towering steel fence, and a line of weary people walked through from the Mexican side. I talked to Agent Fidel Baca, who says there's a steady flow of new arrivals. We're doing our best to get everybody out of here. At any given point in time where you show up here and you look over, you're going to see a multitude of people. Now, the group I saw included men and women, parents and children holding hands, and most people are from South America. They walk toward a waiting white bus to take them to a Border Patrol processing center. And Border Patrol estimates there's about 65,000 people waiting all along the border in Mexico, 
but we really don't know exactly how many. I talked to a migrant who arrived at the border a couple of weeks ago, and others have been waiting in Mexico far longer. With all these people arriving and preparing for the end of this so they can cross over, how is El Paso managing these large numbers of people? Well, the city and the county and local nonprofit organizations say they're ready. They've been through this before. Back in December, when Title 42 was supposed to end, 1,800 migrants a day were turning themselves into Border Patrol in El Paso. And right now we're seeing about 1,100, so that's a lower number. Now, the city has turned two vacant schools into temporary shelters. Churches and nonprofit groups are also providing shelter and food for migrants. And the county has a center to help coordinate travel for people who have sponsors or relatives elsewhere in the U.S. And, of course, the vast majority of migrants do move on. Angela, Border Patrol has said that it will carry out targeted enforcement. What does that mean? Well, we did hear about that earlier this week, and El Paso Border Patrol agents went downtown and handed out flyers to a crowd of migrants who had been sleeping outside a church. And they urged those people in the flyer, if they had not been processed by immigration authorities, to do so right away and use a legal pathway, or they'd risk being picked up and deported. Now, this mother from Venezuela, who only gave her first name as Ildrani, said after careful consideration, her family decided to go through with the processing. So she, along with her husband and 13-year-old daughter, they were among an estimated 500 migrants who lined up outside a border patrol station in downtown El Paso this week, and they were processed, released, and given an immigration court date. Hers was for next summer. And the crowd at the church has dwindled from about 1,000 people on Monday to just a few dozen people right now. You've been describing the situation in El Paso. What about the rest of the border? Well, we're hearing that along the California border, they're also seeing people camped out waiting to turn themselves into Border Patrol agents. And volunteers there are handing out food and water on the Mexican side. And Border Patrol also handed out water to people in line to come into the country. Now, many are from Latin America. We're hearing some are from West Africa. And volunteers are also helping charge cell phones for the migrants. And people waiting to cross into Arizona, well, those cell phones are also very important. They are using the phones to apply for appointments via the CBP-1 app. It's now the primary way for migrants to make appointments if they want to seek asylum. Now, U.S. Customs and Border Protection is advising that the international bridges will not receive people seeking asylum. Those who don't have appointments will be turned away. And, of course, we've heard from migrants that that app has problems. Secretary Mayorkas, in a press conference today, said they're expanding the app to 1,000 appointments a day. But the problem, he said, is they don't have enough asylum officers to meet with migrants. Angela, in maybe 30 seconds, could you give us a sort of an overview of, of what is it? what is the significance of ending Title 42? Well, this really is a watershed moment for the southern border. The pandemic health order imposed more than three years ago became a de facto immigration enforcement tool. And here where I am in El Paso, Texas, a city and across the border in Juarez, these are major uh, migration corridors and this has become the site of a humanitarian crisis. And so people are waiting. The question now, what happens after the clock strikes midnight? That's Angela Kacherga with member station KTEP reporting from El Paso. Thank you. Thank you. As conservative states continue to pass laws targeting transgender rights, some trans people are deciding to leave. Stephanie Colombini at member station WUSF has the story of one teenager who decided to flee Florida in the middle of the school year to start a new life more than a thousand miles from home. Josie's 16. 
She's at home in St. Augustine, sifting through her bedroom closet with her mom, Sarah. Remember this dress? When's the last time you wore it? Homecoming. High school homecoming. Winter homecoming. <laughs> Dresses, cardigans, overalls, each bring back a memory. Oh my God, this is one of my favorite dresses. There were a lot of good memories, like school dances and family vacations. But Josie says the good times have felt scarce, as Florida has become increasingly unwelcoming to transgender people. She and her parents asked to go by their first names only, out of fear of retaliation. Josie was packing up her closet because she was moving to Rhode Island in a few days. Her aunt and uncle live outside Providence. Her dog, Reese, pushed around the suitcase to snuggle up to her. She has like a sense when I'm sad, and then she just like comes running in. Josie didn't want to go, but she feels like she can't live in Florida anymore. The state is one of more than a dozen that have passed bans on gender-affirming medical care for minors, and Josie didn't know if she'd lose access to the hormones she takes to help her body align with her identity. I felt pretty scared. The ban started in March. Florida's medical board said the treatments were too experimental for minors. Kids like Josie, who'd already started care, could continue but she didn't trust that would last. In fact, the legislature even considered forcing all trans youth to stop treatment by the end of the year. I thought that they would realize what they've done wrong and, you know, repeal some things, but they just kept going. It just became, like, too real too fast. In the end, lawmakers let kids like Josie stay in treatment, but she was already convinced Florida just wasn't a safe place for her. School has been challenging at times since Josie came out as trans in eighth grade. Some childhood friends rejected her. She wanted to play on the girls' tennis team, but a recent Florida law forbid it. And it was painful when Florida teachers had to start watching what they said about LGBTQ issues. They were required to take down like little stickers on doors that said that it was a safe space, which is just ridiculous. You want your students to be comfortable and safe. The new laws and anti-trans rhetoric are hurting kids across Florida, says psychologist Jennifer Evans. She works at the University of Florida's Gender Clinic in Gainesville. I'm seeing a lot more anxiety, depression. Things I hear patients say are, the government doesn't want me to exist. They don't feel safe. Evans points to the many states passing all sorts of bills that target trans individuals, not just their medical care, but what schools can teach or what bathrooms you can use. Evans identifies as queer herself. She says a bill doesn't even have to pass for it to cause harm. It's a lot to feel like enough people in this country don't agree with your existence, which actually isn't affecting them. It's painful to see that. Evans says at her clinic, four families have already moved out of Florida, while another 10 plan to leave this year. Some older teens she treats are also planning to get out when they turn 18. But moving isn't easy. Josie's dad, Eric, says like many families, they had a lot at stake. You know, just financially, it's it's difficult to uproot what we've set up. They've owned their home in St. Augustine for a long time, and Eric recently started a new job. Josie's mom, Sarah, works at a private college with a benefit that allows Josie and her older sister to get reduced tuition at some colleges around the country. So her parents decided that, at least for now, Josie would go live with her aunt and uncle and they would stay behind. Sarah says it was a devastating call to make. It was just terror in my heart. Like you could just feel that cold burst in my chest and going all throughout my body. 
like Josie's part of everything I do. Josie will finish her sophomore year up north. She says she'll miss her parents' hugs and her friends. Before she left, she had a going away party. <laughs> the teens played a dance video game. Sarah brought out black forest cake. What does it say on the bottom, Josie? It says, we love you, Josie. Thank you. A few days after that party, Josie and her mom flew north to get Josie settled. Sarah said it was really hard to leave her daughter in Rhode Island. That was a mess. I cried the whole way to the airport. I just felt I was going the wrong way. She's still adjusting to life without Josie at home, but they talk every day. Josie says her aunt and uncle have been really great. Her new high school is a little smaller than her old one and in a more liberal area. So far, it's been pretty good. My first week, I had a streak of making at least one friend per day. Like, in one day, I made four. Josie loves that the school has pride flags in the halls and its own Gender and Sexuality Alliance Club. It was just such, like, a shock to me. Like, not a bad shock, but, like, just shocked at this is how schools can be. It's just that Florida's choosing not to be like that. We reached out to Governor Ron DeSantis' office several times to respond to families' concerns, but haven't heard back. Josie's parents say they'll keep their pride flag waving in the front yard and advocate for other trans kids while she's away. Josie says she still thinks about those who can't leave. But right now, she needs to move on. For NPR News, I'm Stephanie Colombini in Tampa. And this story comes from NPR's partnership with WUSF and KFF Health News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Backstopping the deposits at two failed banks cost the government billions, but the FDIC has a plan to recover that money. We'll hear about it in about 20 minutes on WBUR. Also ahead in about five minutes, 40 years of Weird Al Yankovic. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Masters in Applied Economics at Boston College, offering an industry-aligned degree that can help drive better organizational and business decisions. bc.edu msae. And Native Plant Trust. Enjoy 21 species of trillium in bloom, plus special tours and programs now through Sunday at Garden in the Woods in Framingham. More at nativeplanttrust.org. The Dow had its fourth straight down day today. It lost nearly seven-tenths of a percent. S&P fell nearly two-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq rose by the same amount, about two-tenths of a percent. The number of jobless claims in Massachusetts has risen again. Labor Department data showed that last week nearly 35,000 people filed for unemployment. That's up by about 6,000 claims over the previous week. Though layoffs appear to be on the rise, the Federal Labor Department says job security remains strong nationwide. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MFS. Their active 360-degree approach combines long-term investing with actionable insights and resources. Visit mfs.com active360. And La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, modern Latin American fare for those seeking flavorful, healthy choices. Catering your office lunch in greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. 
WBUR is partnering with Winston Flowers so you can send the perfect Mother's Day gift and support our independent journalism. This is a huge fundraiser for us and an easy way to do good uh, two good things at once. You can save 10% until midnight tonight and choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. 80 degrees now in Boston. The time is 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. From BritBox with the Confessions of Franny Langton, one woman's story of courage, murder, and forbidden love in this new original drama. Available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Sharks are among the best swimmers on the planet. But a new study in the journal Science shows that one species may be diving deep using a trick common to humans. NPR's Jeff Brumfield has more. The scalloped hammerhead shark lives in oceans all over the planet. It's one of the larger, but not the largest hammerhead species. That's Mark Royer, a shark researcher at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Scalloped hammerheads have a really unusual skill. They can dive to over 2,500 feet below the surface. At those depths, even the most sunny tropical oceans become dark and frigid. Imagine you're on a, a warm, sunny beach and you hop out of the warm water, and then immediately plunge into an ice bath. It'd be unpleasant for a human, but it's potentially deadly for a shark. A shark can't generate its own body heat. If it gets too cold, it can't swim. And if it stops swimming, water doesn't flow across its gills. It can't breathe. It dies. So here's the question. How is it that a coastal, warm, tropical species is able to go down into these deep depths and survive? To find out, Royer and his colleagues went to a bay where the hammerheads swim. We do this all in a small 17-foot Boston whaler, so it's almost like the size of a dinghy. And you don't think you need a bigger boat? We don't, know. It's like the smaller the better because we want to be able to lean over and get as close as possible. In order to attach a bunch of electronics to each shark's fin. This is essentially like putting a Fitbit on the shark. When Royer and his colleagues later analyzed that sharky Fitbit data, what they found amazed them. The sharks dive, spend just a few minutes at the bottom, probably hunting squid. And then they pitch themselves at an 80-degree angle and then shoot towards the surface. But what's really wild is their body temperature doesn't drop. It stays steady until they start coming back from the deep. Royer quickly realized what was going on. They were uh, closing their gill slits and preventing that water from flowing across their gills that would cool their body down. They're holding their breath. The sharks are holding their breath. Yes, they're holding their breath. Remember, unlike humans, sharks use gills to breathe underwater. This is all about temperature. Passing cold water over the gills would cool the shark's blood, putting it in danger. It makes sense, Royer says, but he still can't quite believe it. After doing this study, it still um, shocks and baffles me. That a shark would need to hold its breath underwater. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. Weird Al Yankovic has been the creative genius behind some of the best parody songs ever made. Eat It, Smells Like Nirvana, Dare to be Stupid. The list goes on and on and on. It's 
It's the kind of fun, dorky music you're introduced to as a teenager and you never forget it. Weird Al's self-titled debut album came out 40 years ago this month, and it inspired NPR Music Stephen Thompson to compile a list of his favorite Weird Al songs. Hi, Stephen. Hello. Thank you for having me. I love this music because I was a teenager <laughs> of the 1980s. Yep. So I don't know how we compare in age, but when did you get introduced to Weird Al? Well, I'm 50 years old, and so I was introduced to Weird Al at Christmas 1984. <laughs> I, I tore open a, a wrapped vinyl record, and it was Weird Al Yankovic in 3D. My parents thought, geez, Stephen doesn't have a lot of friends. <laughs> He's ki- kind of a nerd. I think this might be just the thing. And it, it absolutely was. It, it opened up up kind of a whole new world for me. And it was a, a gateway into a lot of great pop music. I think for a lot of people, Weird Al Yankovic is a gateway into mainstream culture. He's not necessarily reflecting it for a lot of the people who are into him. For a lot of people, their first contact is with him. Interesting. You think sometimes they knew his song be- that he did the version of before they heard the original pop song. I think that's often true. It's definitely true of my mother. Um, <laughs> So you were a fan, clearly. I was a fan from age 12 to the present day into the distant future. And I should note here, over the years, I have actually gotten to know Weird Al. I worked with him on a couple projects when I worked at The Onion many years ago. I booked him for the tiny desk. I wrote liner notes to one of his compilations. I'm not necessarily a completely objective observer, but I tried to give these songs as keen a critical eye as I could. He's probably most famous for his parodies. And by the way, does he have anything other than parodies? Because I mostly associate him with parody. Yeah, he's mostly associated with songs like Eat It or Smells Like Nirvana, songs where he's taking popular songs, recreating them, but with different lyrics. Have some more chicken, have some more pie. It doesn't matter if it's boiled or fried. Just eat it, just eat it. But he also does a huge number of originals and kind of writes funny songs, often in the style of other artists, but the song isn't a a direct parody of a specific song. He can eat more frozen waffles than any other man I know. Once he fell off the cracks of building and he barely even stubbed his toe. Had a tiny little scratch on his toe. He's taking, like, the sound of the White Stripes, but writing a funny song around that. He also does polka medleys. He's done TV theme songs. He's done the theme song for a podcast. You know, so he's he's done a lot of different kinds of music, and really in every genre imaginable. That's interesting. I either had forgotten or didn't know he did anything other than parodies. So anyway, let's talk about parodies. Do you have a clear top pick? My number one favorite Weird Al Yankovic song is from 2006. It's a parody of Chameleonaire's song, Riding, and... And so the original is Wide and Dirty, and the parody song is called White and Nerdy. What really jumps out about this song for me is the joke density, the, the, the speed, term, the speed, density. the speed at which jokes are deployed in this song. You almost have to listen to the song multiple times just to pick up every joke. And if you watch the video, there is a whole other layer of jokes on top, a whole bunch of visual jokes. I just find it so delightful. Because I knew I was going to talk to you, I looked up some of Weird Al's lyrics, and I truly have a new appreciation for this man's. Ability to write hysterical <laughs> lyrics. I was told that you actually went back and listened to all of the Weird Al canon to prepare for this. Did you listen to everything? Well, 
Sasha, I am nothing if not deeply, deeply committed to journalistic integrity. And thorough. And yes. thorough, thorough research. He has 14 albums. There's a collection of rarities. They're kind of one-offs soundtrack work, and yeah, it's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it. Any big, profound thoughts after all that research you did? One, <laughs> I had so many. One of the big, profound thoughts I had is when you listen to them in chronological order, you're hearing the evolution of not only Weird Al as a parody songwriter or as a satirist or as a comedic voice, you're hearing the evolution of his band and its ability to recreate these works in such convincing ways. One of the f- central rules of satire, of parody, You have to be able to do the thing you're parodying or satirizing as well or better than the source material. And if you don't, people can see the strings. People can see the seams, and it doesn't look or sound quite right. And so his band has to be able to recreate these songs perfectly. He's really a master of his niche. He is a master of what he does. (laughs) That's NPR Stephen Thompson. Thank you. Thank you. First in my class there at MIT Got skills, I'm a champion of D&D MC Escher, that's my favorite MC Keep your 40, I'll just have an Earl Grey tea My rims never spin To the contrary You'll find it there quite stationary All of my action figures are cherry Stephen Hawking's in my library My MySpace page is all totally pimped out Got people begging for my top eight spaces Yo, I know Pi It's NPR News This is 90.9 WBUR It's a must-win for the Boston Celtics tonight in Philadelphia The Seas currently trail the 76ers In the best-of-seven playoff series Three games to two Tip-off tonight is at 7.30. The winner of this series moves on to the Eastern Conference Final to face either the Knicks or the Miami Heat. Coming to City Space tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, a music festival featuring Lee Zangari, our Massachusetts favorite from NPR's Tiny Desk Contest. Get tickets at wbur.org events. In the forecast, partly cloudy overnight tonight. Temperatures about 56 degrees. Sun shines back tomorrow. Should be warm once again. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham, a homegrown neighborhood deli featuring handcrafted sandwiches, soups, salads, and local ice cream. Hours at volantefarms.com. And Fresh Food Generation Restaurant and Catering, farm-to-plate Caribbean-American meals made with fresh, locally sourced ingredients. Freshfoodgeneration.com. I'm Daryl C. Murphy, host of WBUR's news and culture podcast, The Common. My mom is the anchor of the family, and without her love and support, I don't know if I'd be the person I am today. I am forever grateful. This Mother's Day, show some gratitude to your mom with Winston Flowers from WBUR. You'll support local journalism that strengthens our community. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, House Republicans are aiming to pass a sweeping bill to build more walls along the southern border with Mexico and impose new restrictions on people seeking asylum in the U.S. This comes on the same day that a public health emergency rule used to expel migrants during the pandemic is set to expire at midnight. It's taken months for Republicans to reach a vote over this issue due to disagreements among their own party members. The bill would revive many of the policies pursued by former President Trump. Our hope is to try to move on something as quickly as we possibly can to be able to get something resolved. Uh, Anyone who has eyes can see the problem now on the border. That's GOP Senator James Lankford. The GOP House bill, though, has virtually no chance of becoming law because Democrats have a narrow hold on the Senate and call the measure cruel and anti-immigrant. 
The CEO of Walt Disney has spoken out about what he says is disinformation about the company's ongoing legal battle with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. NPR's Greg Allen has the latest. Disney CEO Bob Iger says the company remains committed to its lawsuit against DeSantis. In a shareholder call, Iger said a law signed by the governor withdrawing Disney's self-governing status was retaliation after the company exercised its freedom of speech. Iger said the company pays more in taxes, $1.1 billion, than any other employer in Central Florida, and had a question for Florida officials. By asking one question, does the state want us to invest more, employ more people, and pay more taxes, or not? Angry that Disney's former CEO opposed a law banning discussion of sexual orientation and gender identity in the schools, DeSantis signed a measure putting its special district near Orlando under the control of a board he appointed. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. Stocks finished mixed for a second day on Wall Street. The Dow lost 221 points, down a little over half a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Researchers at Boston University have developed a digital tool to help identify a person's risk for Parkinson's disease before symptoms appear. The BU researchers worked with Australian scientists to use artificial intelligence to identify unique chemical markers in blood samples from healthy adults who develop Parkinson's 15 years later. The researchers say larger studies are needed. Typically, the central nervous system disorder can only be diagnosed after there are symptoms. Drivers who are traveling across Cape Cod Canal might find their commute a little easier this afternoon. The Army Corps of Engineers is removing lane restrictions that have clogged the Sagamore Bridge for weeks. WBR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez has more. Only two of the bridge's four lanes have been open to traffic since March 1st. Three phases of repairs were set to be completed by Memorial Day weekend. The Army Corps of Engineers, which operates the bridge, says the repair work is done, two weeks ahead of schedule. Crews are removing construction equipment, but the Corps in a statement says all travel lanes are now open. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Chelsea, Revere, and Winthrop were just awarded a $100,000 grant to set up charging stations for electric vehicles. The money is from the state's Efficiency and Regionalization Grant Program. It'll help identify locations and develop the infrastructure by early next year. The state says passenger vehicles account for 28% of the emissions in the area. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. And Ocean State Job Lot, helping those affected by crises around the world by partnering with customers to provide crucial supplies to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. Still feels like summer out there, 79 degrees now, sunshine alternating with clouds and showers this evening. Tonight should be partly cloudy and warm, just falling to the mid-50s. Tomorrow, sunshine and clouds again, maybe some afternoon rain, strong winds, highs could break 80 degrees. And then sunny and warm on Saturday, sunny and cooler on Mother's Day Sunday. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. 
Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. When two mid-sized banks collapsed in March, the government made the decision to protect all of their depositors, no matter how much money they had in the bank. That helped discourage a more widespread panic at other banks. But the decision came with a price. It cost the nation's deposit insurance fund nearly $16 billion. Today, the FDIC proposed a plan to recover that cost. And NPR's Scott Horsley is here with us to explain that plan. Hi, Scott. Hi. How does the government plan to get this money back? Well, the government said all along it's not going to hit taxpayers. Instead, the money will come from banks, which is how all deposit insurance is paid for. The FDIC does have some discretion, though, in which banks have to pay. Uh, After all, the U.S. has thousands of banks of all different sizes. And the plan announced today would let the vast majority of those banks off the hook. Uh, Banks with more than $5 billion in uninsured deposits at the end of last year would be assessed a fee proportional to those uninsured deposits. FDIC Chairman Martin Grunberg said as the nation's biggest banks would cover the lion's share of the cost. Defining the assessment base in this way would effectively exclude most small banks from the special assessment. And to avoid straining big banks' cash drawers, the proposed fee would be spread out over two years, with the first payment due in the middle of 2024. Interesting. So it penalizes or targets, in a sense, the banks who are rolling the dice on carrying more deposits than they should. What happens now before these changes in mid-2024? Today's proposal kicks off a public comment period, so the details could change before it's finalized. Small banks have been complaining they shouldn't have to pay for the missteps of Silicon Valley and Signature Bank. Uh, Ann Balser, who's with the Independent Community Bankers of America, says her members are pretty happy with how this proposal came out. It appears to be a pretty equitable solution. Smaller banks, which tend to be more of our our community banks, are going to have fewer uninsured deposits. The mega banks, the Wall Street banks, have over 50% of their deposits are are typically going to be uninsured. Those are the ones that create the broader risk to the deposit insurance fund. Even at small banks, though, around 20% of deposits may exceed the cap on insurance, which is currently a quarter uh, million dollars per account. Last week, the FDIC issued a white paper suggesting Congress might consider raising that limit, at least for certain business accounts used to make payroll or cover other expenses. And Scott, we should know it sounds like you're Scott. Your dog likes to talk about the FDIC, too. <laughs> <laughs> but what are the pros and cons of what you just described, this plan? Well, deposit insurance helps to limit bank runs. You know, if you know you're going to get your money back, even if your bank goes under, well, there's no reason to rush out and take the money out. So it acts like a fire extinguisher that douses sparks before they spread. Uh, It helps promote financial stability. As this episode has shown, though, backstopping deposits cost money, and somebody has to bear that cost. Aaron Klein, who's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, worries that any additional cost banks face for deposit insurance will just be passed on to their customers, especially the customers who can least afford it. America's retail banking system is already a reverse Robin Hood. For the half of Americans who can always have $1,000 in their bank, they get quote-unquote free checking. If you don't always have $1,000 in your bank account, you get hit with monthly maintenance fees. Another argument you hear against more deposit insurance is it makes customers indifferent if their bank's engaged in risky behavior, although a lot of customers may think it's regulators' job to police risky behavior at banks, and they just want to park their money someplace and not have to think about it. Scott, overall, how sound is the deposit insurance fund? 
Well, bank customers who deposit, whose deposits are insured should feel confident. Uh, even when we've had widespread bank failures like the SNL crisis in the late 80s, depositors didn't lose money. Ultimately, the insurance fund's backed by the full faith and credit of the government. So that should be good, at least if we avoid a government default this summer. By June 1st, that's NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you. You're welcome. If it sounds a little like every hit song these days, samples or quotes or hints at a different song, well, you are not alone. In just a bit, we'll hear my conversation with NPR music critic Ann Powers about why that might be happening more. First, though, an Italian word, l'immensità. It means immensity, which may seem an odd title for a small family drama. But our movie critic, Bob Mondello, says immensity captures what its youthful protagonist feels, the weight of the world on adolescent shoulders. 1970s Rome, 12-year-old Audrey is ending adolescence in a household filled with instability. His philandering father has gotten a co-worker pregnant. His mom, Clara, is forever either covering up her tears with makeup or deflecting, putting a record on the turntable, say, and enlisting her three kids. To turn dinner prep into a glorious tablecloth unfurling production number. It's feast or famine in this home emotionally. Small wonder Audrey is first spotted stringing wires from a rooftop TV antenna, hoping to get signals from outer space. Did they answer, wonders his little sister? Oh, if only. Audrey doesn't really know where else to turn for support. He's a transgender boy, though his family won't acknowledge that. When he calls himself Andrew, Dad counters with Adriana. Meanwhile, Mom, played by a vibrant Penelope Cruz, as if she's channeling Sophia Loren, tries to understand as best she can. Gender dysphoria was not something anyone said in 1970. You and Dad made me wrong, Audrey tells Clara as they wander Rome. I come from another galaxy and you don't have the power to fix me. Clara's response is to bond with her child. On the walk home, they play a game where they run screaming with laughter through a crowd. And for the moment, they're both okay. In this warm, evocative memory of adolescence, the world around Audrey and Clara is also in flux, buildings springing up in Rome suburbs like reeds in a marsh. A construction site the kids sneak off to visit has a girl named Sarah who accepts Audrey as Andrew and thinks he's cute enough to share a first kiss amid the concrete pipes and cables, but the construction job is almost done, as are mom's marital coping mechanisms. Her husband's a jerk, and sneaking under the table to steal shoes with the kids at family gatherings can maybe get her out of talking about it with the other moms and dads once. When Limencita premiered to Cheers a few months ago at the Venice Film Festival, its longtime writer-director Emmanuel Crialise revealed for the first time publicly that he's a trans man, and that while the film is not autobiography, the character of Adri was inspired by his own experience. Played smartly by newcomer Luana Giulani, who does not identify as trans in real life, Adri is a forceful, affirmative figure, and perhaps more to the point, Giulani can hold the screen with Penelope Cruz, as the director surrounds them with arresting images. Kids flinging vestments out a church school window. A red napkin blindfold game at Christmas time, black and white musical fantasies. No question, the filmmaker's personal story adds impact, but with gorgeous cinematography and Cruz as its resident goddess, Limensita, 
had plenty going for it already. I'm Bob Mandela. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A Palestinian-American journalist and role model for female journalists in the Mideast, Shireen Abu Akleh, was killed one year ago today. She was reporting on an Israeli military raid in the occupied West Bank. Israel says a soldier likely shot her by accident and no one was punished. But the U.S. and her family do not consider this case closed, as NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Jerusalem. Shirin Abu Akleh was wearing a helmet and protective vest marked press when she was shot last May in the occupied West Bank. Israeli police interrupted her funeral procession and beat the pallbearers. Her coffin nearly fell to the ground. Definitely, it was a very difficult year for the family. It was a, a big loss. You know, Shirin was a pillar, major pillar in the family. We've been, uh, you know, pursuing justice for her all this time. It was a very difficult year. Her brother, Anton Abouakle. He traveled to Washington and met with Secretary of State Antony Blinken, seeking a U.S. investigation into her killing. Under U.S. pressure, Israel said one of its soldiers most likely killed her, mistaking her for a gunman. But it did not prosecute anyone. Naftali Bennett was Israel's prime minister at the time of her killing and addressed the Foreign Press Association in Jerusalem last week. I asked him what can be done to ensure journalists are not shot again. At the end of the day, it's a very dangerous place to be in there. What I can say is Israel and Israel's defense forces never did and never will deliberately harm or try and hit the reporters. He also said there was no reason to prosecute a soldier for shooting Abu Akleh. Bad things happen. Civilians die, sometimes deliberately, in which case you need prosecution, and sometimes not deliberately, in which case, no, I don't think, uh, if if there's a battle going on and uh, there's collateral damage that is not deliberate, right, then no. There had been gun battles that day, but Abu Akleh was filmed slowly walking with her crew during minutes of calm when she was shot. Anton Abu Akleh. This is really sad to hear this from the previous prime minister. I know that uh, the U.S. asked them to review the rules of engagement, but uh, this is not enough. Uh, For us, accountability means anyone involved in Shirin's killing, from the soldier who pulled the trigger all the way up the chain of command, are held accountable. The New York-based Committee to Protect Journalists says in a new report, it's found a pattern of impunity in cases where Israeli troops have shot and killed Palestinian journalists. And the Israeli military's procedures are unclear, says CPJ's Robert Mani. When we have brought out cases of, for example, journalists who have been killed or detained by the U.S. forces, whether in Iraq or or in Afghanistan, there has been a positive response. And we have held the U.S. Army to account for its procedures. And there have been investigations. The problem with the, uh, the Israeli Defense Forces investigation is that we do not know. For example, the IDF rules of engagement when it comes to how they interact 
with journalists who are covering their operations. The FBI started an investigation months ago, since Abu Akleh was an American, but Israel says it's refusing to cooperate. This month, her family will be back in Washington meeting with senators to press for more answers. They've been touched that several universities in the region established scholarships for female journalism students in Shirin Abu Akleh's name. And the street where her Al Jazeera news bureau is located in the Palestinian city of Ramallah has been renamed Shirin Abu Akleh Street. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Jerusalem. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, the COVID-19 public health emergency ends tonight, but the virus still looms large for many people. And in about 15 minutes, concerns about the end of the pandemic-era border policy that restricted asylum seekers to the U.S. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals. Hybrid workplace strategy reports and more at MPArchitectsBoston.com. And the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Still pretty warm out there. 79 degrees now. Should be partly cloudy overnight tonight and warm, only falling to the mid-50s. Then for tomorrow, sunshine and clouds once again. Could have an afternoon shower. Strong winds. Highs could just break 80 degrees. It's 449. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer. When I was a kid growing up in England, my mother's favorite BBC radio station broadcast a radio play every afternoon. My brother and I would usually get home from school a few minutes before the play was about to end. We knew better than to say a word. We'd slide into our usual seats at the kitchen table. Mom would put the kettle on, cut us each a slice of homemade cake. Then we would sit in silence until the play ended and my mother returned from whatever cozy farmhouse, smuggler's den, foreign paradise or planet she had been transported to. I get my love of radio and its ability to transport us anywhere from her. Thanks, Mom. If you're looking for a meaningful way to say thanks to your mom on Mother's Day and support great storytelling at the same time, consider Winston Flowers from WBUR. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Today marks the end of the COVID-19 public health emergency in the U.S. It's a milestone that really feels symbolic in some ways. Many pandemic precautions and provisions ended a while ago in most public spaces, if they were ever in place to begin with. And as White House COVID coordinator Dr. Ashish Jha told me this week. The country can't be in emergency mode forever. Still, he and other experts stress this point. I hope that people will understand that the emergency over doesn't mean the virus just like disappear on the 11th. That's Vivian Chung, a pediatrician and research scientist from Bethesda, Maryland. She's at much higher risk for serious COVID symptoms or complications because she takes medication for a rare genetic condition that suppresses her immune system. And she is worried about what the end of COVID emergency precautions could mean for her and other immunocompromised patients. On one hand, we're glad the case counts are coming down. 
but in some way we're even less protected. And then there's the social pressure to act as if the pandemic is completely behind us. Chung says more and more she is the only one wearing a mask in most settings. Yeah, I have people walk up to me just on the street to say, oh, don't you know that COVID is over? Some 7 million people in the U.S. are immunocompromised. Another 7 million globally have died from COVID-19. Chung says since the pandemic's onset? I still haven't taken a long flight. I have been to an indoor dining once. Uh, <laughs> I kind of, I would go into grocery stores at like six in the morning. But Chung says other pandemic era changes, like the increase in remote work, have made life more inclusive for her and others. As a community of people with disability, we're still being marginalized. But I think the, the, as that margin widens, I, in some way, the, there is more acceptance. An acceptance that she hopes will mark a permanent cultural shift, one that will keep the world safer for vulnerable populations long after the public health emergency is over. A week ago, a federal jury had to decide an unusual question whether this song... Darling, I will be loving you by Ed Sheeran sounds too much like this song by Marvin Gaye The jury decided Ed Sheeran's Thinking Out Loud did not violate the copyright of Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On Anxious eyes in the music industry were watching the case closely, especially since so much pop music these days draws openly from other pop music. We asked NPR music critic Anne Powers to help us understand. Hey there, Anne. Hello, Mary Louise. Start by characterizing the reaction from folks in the music industry to this verdict in the Ed Sheeran case. I would say the overwhelming response was one of relief and support for Ed Sheeran Certainly, historically, these kinds of cases have caused a lot of conversation with people supporting the original artists as much as those who've interpolated their work. But right now, there's a lot of anxiety about what it means to be a songwriter and new techniques and, you know, dominant paradigms point toward this kind of borrowing. Not that Ed Sheeran did borrow, but honestly, this is a moment where everything seems to be combining. <laughs> yeah, well, and like everything. I'm thinking, I mean, yes. I feel like you turn on the radio these days and everything feels like it is a sample or at least inspired heavily by something else. Here's another example. The big country music hit last year by Cole Swindell. Next thing I knew, man, she was up on the stage singing hits Carolina. California Which borrows from a song by Jody Messina. And he even reached out to her to join a remix. So is this more widespread than it used to be, Anne? Well, one way to think about it, Mary Louise, would be to say music has always been an art of borrowing. It's all about melodies and rhythms being passed down through time, sometimes credited, sometimes uncredited. But another way to look at it is to say we are living in hip hop's century. Technology and um, kind of the customs of the day really center 
um, interpolation, sampling, pastiche in the songwriting process. I mean, look, we're talking about country music right now, right? I mean, country is a genre in which the songwriters always mattered as much as the artists and in which songwriters want many artists to cover their songs. Here, the original artist says, hey, this is revitalizing my career. It's, it's sort of both a brand new day and the same old thing at the same time. One change that does feel worth marking is artists preemptively giving other artists songwriting credits, even if they didn't outright lift any sample, any passage. I'm thinking of uh, Beyonce and the album Renaissance that came out last year. How, how did she navigate this? Beyonce leads us in all things. <laughs> <laughs> what she did with Renaissance, I think, is she has marketed the album as a tribute to uh, black and brown queer dance music innovators. Mm -hmm. She's named them throughout. Um, when she has sampled them, you know, she gives them all credit. For example, uh, Break My Soul, the first single off the record, interpolated the house music diva Robin S. Immediately after the song came out, uh, Robin S was giving interviews saying, I thank you, Beyonce. It's not just about money. It's not just about credit, although it is always about those things. Mm -hmm. I think it's also always about respect. You see, artists now realize that their music being interpolated into another song is beneficial for a lot of reasons. It can, you know, revive a career. It can give a leg up to an unknown artist. But if they are not credited, if they are not respected, it's meaningless. So we need a new ethics of this. You know, if I were to put on my grumpy skeptic cap, never far from my head, I might, <laughs> I might, I might push you and say, is another way to view this, you know, everything is recycled. There are no new ideas. Artists are just being lazy. What do you think as a music critic, Anne? I think the best way to think about this is to think about the great group De La Soul. We love them because of their fascinating use of samples. And only this year were they able to clear those samples and their music was able to be streamed on streaming services. But because... No one would say De La Soul is not original. It's just a different definition of original. So, hey, let's go there. Let's believe in the originality of dialogue and community. Always happy to go there with the great De La Soul. And the great Ann Fowers of NPR Music. Thanks, Ann. Thank you so much. Let me lay my hand across yours and aim a kiss upon your cheek. The name's Pluck 2. And from the soul I bring you the daisy of your choice. May it be filled with a pleasure principle in circumference to my voice. About those other Jennies I reckon with lost them all like a homework excuse. This time the magic number is two. Cause it takes two, not three to seduce. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. From Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. 
From Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches. With catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com And from the listeners who support this NPR station. Windy and warm still now. It is 77 degrees in Boston. Should fall only as far as 56 overnight tonight. Tomorrow, a lot like today. Sunshine and clouds both. Some gusty winds, but warm ones up around 82 degrees. If your mom, wife, or daughter loves flowers, send them Winston flowers for Mother's Day and help give WBUR a strong future. Choose from orchids, roses, peonies for Mother's Day or seasonal flowers for every month. Save 10% until midnight tonight at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive Insurance. Progressive is looking for dedicated and forward-thinking individuals to join their growing team. More information, including application, at Progressive.com careers. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The end of pandemic restrictions tonight for asylum seekers to the U.S. may lead to an influx of migrants. Texas Congressman Vicente Gonzalez is concerned. Small communities along the border do not have the resources they require in the event of an overwhelming surge. It's Thursday, May 11th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, Social Security will start to run out of money in about a decade unless Washington does something about it. A Louisiana Republican senator is trying to lead the effort to save Social Security, but is anyone hearing what he has to say? And CNN has drawn plenty of criticism for its town hall last night with former President Donald Trump. Having a a live audience for a debate in in a presidential race or to interview a president is, is a terrible idea. But you knew that going in. The post town hall questions coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The White House says it is taking unprecedented measures against migrants who try to cross the southern border illegally. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the warning comes just hours before the pandemic-era border security policy known as Title 42 is set to expire. The Biden administration says it remains clear-eyed about the challenges that lie ahead and has taken a number of steps to manage the anticipated influx of migrants at the border. Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas says the expiration of Title 42 doesn't mean that the border is open. If anyone arrives at our southern border after midnight tonight, they will be presumed ineligible for asylum and subject to steeper consequences, including a minimum five-year ban on re-entry. Mayorkas also called on Congress to pass an immigration bill that would strengthen border security and enforce protocols while creating lawful pathways to citizenship. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. There's been a fair amount of talk about the possibility that President Biden might be able to use the 14th Amendment to avoid a potentially costly government default if Congress and the White House fail to agree on a way to raise the debt ceiling. 
Biden hasn't ruled out using what he sees as an untested legal theory. Those remained in favor of a deal being reached that does not tie increasing the borrowing limit to spending cuts, something some Republican lawmakers have been pushing for. Meanwhile, a meeting set for Friday between Biden and congressional lawmakers has now been canceled amid reports aides are making progress in their discussions. The U.S. public health emergency declaration for the COVID-19 pandemic ends today. That means some temporary policies put in place when the crisis started will wind down. As NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin reports, it also is a moment to reflect for many people, including frontline health workers. Many remember photographs of U.S. hospital workers in the early days of the pandemic wearing trash bags because there wasn't enough personal protective equipment. Even as protective gear arrived, healthcare workers often felt unsafe and overstretched and burned out. Joshua Paredes, a nurse in San Francisco, says he's heard from colleagues in healthcare who worry that people have forgotten what they went through. Now more than ever, we need support. We need to know that we're not alone with these, with these emotions. Paredes lost a close friend to suicide, which inspired him to launch a peer support group called Don't Clock Out. He says the pandemic helped health workers organize themselves in new ways. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. Pilots of Southwest Airlines have voted overwhelmingly to authorize a strike at the carrier, though officials say it's unlikely there will be a walkout in the near future, part of an effort to put more pressure on the airline during ongoing contract talks. A mixed close on Wall Street today. The Dow is down 221 points. The Nasdaq up 22 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Congresswoman Diana Presley is calling on the Food and Drug Administration to approve the sale of a form of birth control over-the-counter. Yesterday, an FDA advisory panel recommended the drug known as O-Pill be made available without a prescription. Today, Presley spoke in favor of full FDA approval and said she'll file legislation along with Senator Patty Murray. Presley says the bill will address affordability. It's imperative that we ensure birth control is not only available over the counter, but also affordable and accessible to everyone who needs it. I am so proud to co-lead legislation with Senator Murray and our colleagues that would do just that. The bill will require insurance companies to fully cover the cost of the over-the-counter birth control. The woman hurt by falling equipment on an MBTA redline platform last week is notifying the T. She's seeking to file a lawsuit against the authority. Attorneys who represent Joycelyn Johnson of Quincy say they're sending a letter to the T today. The letter claims the negligence led to an outdated and unused utility box falling from overhead and striking Johnson on her neck and shoulder. The T will have six months to respond to the letter before Johnson can formally file a lawsuit. And Spare Change News is mourning the loss of its co-founder and current board president. James Shearer died Sunday. He was 64 years old. He helped found the newspaper in Boston more than three decades ago after experiencing homelessness and addiction himself. Fellow board member Samuel Weems says Shearer was the organization's guiding light. If you compare a human body, he was the heart of Spirit Change News. He would literally bleed for this place. It's not as though we can't run without him. It's just having a mechanical heart is not the same thing. Spare Change News is sold to low-income individuals uh, and those experiencing homelessness for 50 cents each. They then sell it for $2 and keep the profit. 77 degrees now in the Boston area. A few clouds around overnight tonight, but starlit skies as well. Temperature should be in the mid-50s. Then tomorrow, another summer-like day. Windy and warm could make it to the low 80s. The outside chance of an afternoon shower. This is WBUR. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by BU School of Social Work. Top-ranked part-time MSW programs in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. bu.edu ssw. And Zoo New England with their Zootopia Gala June 10th, supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their mission to inspire care and action for wildlife. zoonewengland.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Just before midnight Eastern tonight, the nation's public health emergency for COVID-19 will officially end, and with it, the border policy known as Title 42. The Trump administration put that policy in place at the start of the pandemic. Title 42 has enabled border officials to swiftly expel migrants crossing into the U.S. without letting them apply for asylum. Letting it expire is a bad idea. According to Texas Representative Vicente Gonzalez, a Democrat, he has been urging President Biden to extend Title 42 and cites concern that, quote, our precarious immigration system is already stretched beyond its capacity. Congressman Gonzalez, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you. Unless something unexpected happens at the stroke of midnight, Title 42 is no more. What is lost in your view? Well, um, our concern is that small communities along the border do not have the resources they require in the event of an overwhelming surge uh, on our border. As of right now, things are generally under control. Our Border Patrol sector chief there, Chief Chavez, has done a phenomenal job in having an orderly process uh, on the border, a staging a center that she created on border at on a golf course mm-hmm. called Camp Monument that's been pretty orderly, moving around a thousand and average hovering about a thousand people a day. Now, when you if you turn up that volume to say ten thousand people in a day, we don't know or five thousand that we will have the personnel and the transportation and every other resource that we need to properly and efficiently and humanely move people along. To follow up on a couple of things you said, one, the situation as we actually understand it now, our reporter, Joel Rose, who's in El Paso, is is saying something that scores with what you just told me, that he is seeing migrants on the streets there downtown in El Paso, um, but not as many as you would have seen a few weeks ago. Um, he interviewed Border Patrol Chief Raul Ortiz, who said the number in border holding facilities is actually down by a few thousand from yesterday morning. Is it possible the predictions of crisis, the fears of crisis will not come to pass. It is possible. And and I'm hopeful that that is the case. Uh, I'm just being cautiously optimistic. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we have been, the administration has been planning this transition for over a year now. And, uh, and has been messaging saying, you know, the border uh, is not open, don't come. That's right. And, and after Title 42, you're going to probably see CBP and Border Patrol transition into enforcing Title VIII, which will uh, be a continuation of of enforcing the laws on our southern border, which include uh, immediate removal. And mm-hmm. uh, and I think that should be a concern for migrants who are trying to make their way up. You cited um, that what is needed is infrastructure, good infrastructure. That's right. And I'll note the Biden administration has already built facilities to house thousands more migrants. They have hired more staff. They're trying to cut processing times. What more do you want to see? Yeah. Well, for the last four or five years, I've been pushing the idea of safe zones, which the administration calls uh, you know, third country asylum processing centers. 
And we should be creating places in Guatemala and in Costa Rica, places like Panama and Colombia, where migrants can show up and process their asylum claim at that juncture and not have to make that trek all the way to our southern border. And if we're ultimately going to allow them in, allow them to fly into their final destination from there. And your argument is that these centers should be farther along. We should have more set up before Title 42 That's right. Is it rolled back. takes the pressure off our southern border, which allows the Border Patrol and, and uh, law enforcement to do what they've been trained to do on our southern border. And it also removes the cartels out of the equation. Cartels, you got to remember, are making billions of dollars uh, bringing migrants to our southern border. Big picture, the U.S. can have whatever infrastructure it wants in place if violence and political and economic stability in parts of Latin America continues to drive people to the southern border. We still have a problem. What would you like to see the administration do? What can any administration do to address root causes here? That's right. And that's something that that uh, we continue to ignore on Capitol Hill, that the people are migrating mostly because of economic reasons. And we should go into those countries that have the most migration coming, which is the three Central American countries, and invest in their economies, in, in, in agriculture and manufacturing and tourism to improve lives and uh, create conditions that make people not want to migrate. Congressman, thank you. Thank you. That is Democratic Congressman Vicente Gonzalez representing Brownsville and other parts of southern Texas. Coming up, a story about how Taiwan once used music to convince Chinese citizens to defect. Specifically, it used the sound of women singing. But first, to the power of persuasion on Capitol Hill. If Washington does nothing, Social Security will start to run out of money in about a decade. That means benefits would be cut and poverty rates would skyrocket among the elderly. Louisiana Republican Senator Bill Cassidy is trying to stop that from happening. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis recently sat down with Cassidy to talk about his big idea to fix it. Senator Bill Cassidy is a gastroenterologist by trade, so he's comfortable doing uncomfortable things. In Congress, few things are more uncomfortable than trying to change Social Security, the so-called third rail of American politics, because any politician who tries to touch it risks getting burned. The third rail should be that you're going to sit passively while the program goes insolvent. I'm trying to stop those cuts. Allowing the cuts should be the third rail. He's an equal opportunity critic of President Biden and former President Donald Trump, the current frontrunner for the Republican nomination. Because both men are campaigning to protect Social Security, but light on any details of how exactly they plan to do that. If I sound aggravated as heck, we've got a program that's going insolvent in eight to nine years, at which point, by the way, poverty among the elderly doubles. And we have the leading presidential candidates acting like there's not a problem. Social Security is funded by workers' payroll taxes and is barred by law from borrowing money. Once it starts to run out of money, the only recourse is automatic benefit cuts for recipients. On its current course, that will start to happen around 2034 and could result in a 24 percent decrease in benefits. Nearly everyone over the age of 65 in America receives some form of Social Security benefit. So about two years ago, Cassidy had the spark of what he dubs the big idea. It suddenly occurred to me that we could address this by creating an investment fund. He linked up with independent Maine Senator Angus King, who caucuses with Democrats, and they started putting together the pieces of how it would work. The pitch goes like this. 
The government invests $1.5 trillion over five years in an independent investment fund separate from Social Security. You would let it sit there for 70 years, and you would allow it to grow. The risk is on the fund and not on the taxpayer. It models investment funds for other existing federal pension programs. It blossoms and eventually becomes adequate to pay for 75 percent of the liabilities of the Social Security Trust Fund. The government would have to borrow money to make sure scheduled benefits are paid out. But you're borrowing money against the money which is in the fund. So it decreases the risk of our debt and deficit. The fund would be managed independently of Congress to prevent future political interference. I just tell people, you may not like our plan, come up with a better option. He concedes his plan only solves most of the problem and avoids the tougher questions about whether to raise taxes or the retirement age. Solving those questions, he says, will require presidential leadership. But he said at a minimum he supports no plan that will raise taxes on seniors or affect anyone close to retirement. Then comes the hardest part. Then you need the political consensus. Cassidy and his allies have been quietly working Washington channels through lobbying shops, think tanks, and economic gurus to get feedback and buy-in. I could give you a list of probably 50 different entities on the right and the left that we went to speak to to either build support or to learn from them, and the final product is robust. It's also still a little unclear. While Cassidy makes no secret of his plan, there's no official legislative text and no plans to hold any public forums or hearings. That's by design. Until a president chooses to show leadership, there's no reason to have a hearing uh, because it will become fodder for somebody running for re-election who would rather be irresponsible with the future of the United States as opposed to being honest with the American people and coming up with an innovative solution. There was a moment after the 2022 midterms in which Cassidy thought the Biden White House might engage on Social Security because he says divided government is the ideal time to fix entitlement programs because they have to have bipartisan support. But then Biden made attacking Republicans on Social Security a central message of his State of the Union address, and Cassidy knew it was over. Ultimately, they have decided that the president is going to run for re-election, accusing Republicans of wanting to destroy Social Security. While he says he will vote Republican in 2024, he's already made it clear he will not vote for Trump if he is the party's nominee. Cassidy was one of seven Senate Republicans who voted to convict Trump in the Senate impeachment trial for his role in inciting the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Whether or not being an opponent of the most popular man in the Republican Party will make it difficult to advance policy ideas within that same party, Cassidy shrugs. Scripture says that the day's own troubles be sufficient for the day. I could worry all I want to about tomorrow. My goal is today. For now, Cassidy and his allies are waiting for their moment, which will come sometime after the 2024 election and sometime before Social Security hits insolvency in about a decade. I'm here to do something, not to be something. And if we can do something, wow, on my epitaph, it'll be several things listed, but one of them will be work with others to fix Social Security. He said he intends to spend the rest of his time in Congress trying to solve it. He's next up for re-election in 2026. Susan Davis, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to All Things Considered.
This is 98.9 WBUR. Coming up in about five minutes on All Things Considered, China is pressuring Taiwan residents using misinformation and propaganda. We'll hear how Taiwan once used information warfare to sway Chinese citizens to defect and what it used as its key tool. And coming up a little bit later, we'll hear from an elementary school custodian in Maine who has coached his teams to chess championships. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. And Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. The Dow had its fourth straight down day today. It lost nearly seven-tenths of a percent. S&P fell nearly two-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq rose by the same amount, two-tenths of a percent. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. It's now 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Gardner Museum. There's so much to unpack in the art and global travel albums of Betty Saar and Isabella Stewart Gardner. Gardnermuseum.org. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. Sunday is Mother's Day. Honor your mom, your wife, your sister, your daughter, or anybody else with Winston Flowers and send them from WBUR to strengthen our journalism. Choose the perfect gift and save 10% until midnight tonight at WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It's no understatement to say COVID-19 has shifted the way most of us see the world. For some, it has fundamentally shifted how they see themselves. I will always be a long hauler. That is 41-year-old Brooklyn resident Semhar Faseha. She got sick with COVID more than two years ago, and she stayed sick. Sometimes she was so weak she couldn't get around without a wheelchair. Many months later, she knew she was in a camp that had been in the news a lot, those with long COVID. Here is how she described her life to NPR in late 2021. I was really active and social, and to go from that to basically being homebound and having to calculate the energy that I have for just the basic activities that I took for granted before. How do you wrap your mind around that? And this week, Faseha spoke to NPR again, as today marks the end of the federal COVID public health emergency. Now there's a kind of like a stop button happening to it. Like, okay, we're done with this public health emergency. But there are thousands of people that are still left 
dealing with the impact of it. Faseha works in healthcare as a population health administrator at a medical school. So she is well aware of what the wind down of the COVID emergency means. For many, free testing will end. States will no longer be required to report case numbers to the CDC. And more broadly, Faseha is worried about what it means for research on patients like her. A lot of long haulers were mild, managed it at home. So they're not going to be captured. New long haulers will not be captured. There are some things that won't go away with the end of the public health emergency, like telehealth and free vaccine access for most Americans. And fortunately for Faseha, some of her worst symptoms have improved. She still had to change the way she lives to manage it all, though. Simple triggers like being hungry or cold can still overwhelm her body. Whereas before, if I was hungry, my body would go into this mode of like, all right, let's go into survival mode until you eat. Now it just I kind of like lose mobility. My body kind of shuts down. I start slurring my words. I move really slowly. And then if I don't remedy it, if I don't like have a snack, I could. It's weird. It's kind of like I'm awake, but I'm in a coma. I'm aware that there's still so much research that needs to be done around long COVID that we don't know enough about it. We don't know how it chooses who to stick onto. So as the world moves on from a state of emergency, Faseha hopes the medical community won't leave those with long COVID behind. China has long vowed to take control of Taiwan. It continues to pressure residents of the Democratic Island through online misinformation and propaganda. But decades ago, Taiwan once used its own form of information warfare to sway Chinese citizens to defect to Taiwan. One of its key tools? The female voice. NPR's Emily Fang brings us this story about the women and the music behind that effort. To this day, you can hear the soft, crooning ballads of Taiwanese pop star Deng Lijun or Teresa Tang everywhere, in both China and Taiwan, including here from a set of massive outdoor speakers on the remote Taiwanese island of Kinmen, just a few miles from China's coast. I'm standing in front of a three-story tall set of concrete speakers, and it's just blasting Deng Lijun songs in the direction of the Chinese mainland. Not to be outdone, on the other side of the strait, China set up its own speakers. Until 1991, the speakers blasted patriotic propaganda to any Taiwanese living within earshot. This was information warfare, 1970s style. Each side trying to get the other on their side ideologically, and possibly to even get their citizens to defect. I was so happy I had an opportunity to be sent to Taiwan's outlying islands. My family asked what I would do going to such a dangerous place, but I thought, how great is that? This is Jin Meihui. She just retired from a long career as a radio journalist. But in her first job in her 20s, she lived on a military base on Matsu, another Taiwanese island just miles off China's coast. There, under tight security, she recorded broadcasts designed to be blasted on giant speakers towards China. She demonstrates how she used to record. Dear compatriots, she says, stretching out her syllables, the only way her voice could carry far and still sound clear. 
1979, when she was on Matsu, Taiwan was then run under martial law by a one-party authoritarian state. Its primary mission was to invade and take control of China. Jin not only played music and relayed propaganda messages. We'd get assignments from the intelligence bureau to transmit Morse code encryption numbers to Taiwan spies in China, like this. Other broadcasts tried to entice Chinese pilots to defect and bring with them military intel from China. Here's another newsreader, Chen Xiaoping. Planes then couldn't carry enough fuel to fly directly from China to Taiwan, so I would teach listeners some techniques, like how to wave your airplane wing flaps a certain way to signal to allies, I am defecting, I want to go to Taiwan. But Taiwan's Mandarin pop music was by far the most important tool, played into China either through speakers near its coast or by powerful shortwave radio signals. For a decade, starting in 1979, Chen even ran a talk show called Teresa Time, an hour dedicated to just playing Teresa Tang songs on shortwave for listeners in China. China, of course, did its best to block Taiwan's broadcasts. China always interfered with the broadcast, but Teresa Tang sang lyrics with such clear enunciation and her voice was so sweet and lovely, so our compatriots in China loved to listen to her. Teresa Tang's music was not officially allowed in communist China then, but people there coveted cassette tapes with her music copied on them, smuggled in from the then British colony of Hong Kong. To this day, she remains incredibly popular across the Chinese-speaking world, despite her tragically early death 28 years ago this week. And Tang's music continues to transcend ideologies that divide the Taiwan Strait. For example, when political tensions eased in the early 2000s, Taiwanese host Chen Xiaoping finally set foot on the Chinese mainland. She met some of her former listeners and their children there. I realized there was no such thing called hatred between us. As a young broadcaster, she'd been trained to think of Chinese people as gongfei, or communist bandits, as Taiwanese propaganda called them. But traveling to China, she realized... In a closed environment, we became mysterious to each other. But seeing each other in the same room, we realized we are not very different. As in, they were all people. People who want happiness and health and to listen to Teresa Tang's music. Emily Fang, NPR News, Kinmen Island, Taiwan. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, the CNN Trump Town Hall, the perspective from the day after, coming up in about six minutes on WBUR. Listen to Violation, a new podcast from WBUR in partnership with The Marshall Project, a story about two families and a crime that's bound them together for decades. You can hear Violation wherever you get your podcasts. In the forecast, should be a starlit night tonight, a few clouds around. You can peel off a blanket. Temperature should only fall as far as the mid-50s. Tomorrow, another summer-like day, windy and warm, could make it to the low 80s. The outside chance of an afternoon shower. The weekend is looking bright. This is WBUR. It's 530.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. And Northbridge Brass, presenting a family-friendly patriotic brass concert with BSO and Pops musicians, May 27th and 28th, northbridgebrass.com. I'm Rupa Shanoi, host of WBUR's Morning Edition. My mom gave me the gift of my family's food, from dal to chicken curry. She taught me to make them the way she and her mom made them, but she also encouraged me to make my own changes. This Mother's Day, thank your mom with Winston Flowers from WBUR. Your gift will strengthen journalism that fosters independent thinking. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Speaking ahead of a meeting today in Japan with finance ministers of the Group of Seven Advanced Economies, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says there is no good alternative, in her opinion, to avoid repeated standoffs with Congress over spending. Yellen says raising the debt ceiling to avert a default on the national debt remains the only option. A default would threaten the gains that we've worked so hard to make over the past few years in our pandemic recovery, and it would spark a global downturn that would set us back much further. Yellen noted that the U.S. Congress has raised or suspended the debt limit almost 80 times since 1960. Her comments come as the White House and top congressional leaders postpone plans for a second meeting tomorrow, giving their staff more time to work on some kind of compromise. A new report says more than 71 million people were displaced worldwide last year, setting a new record. NPR's Joanna Kakissis says Russia's war on Ukraine was a major factor in forcing folks out of their homes. The Internal Displacement Monitoring Center says the number of people forced out of their homes but remaining in their country rose by 20% from last year. Ukraine and Pakistan saw the highest rates of displacement. Russia's war on Ukraine forced 17 million movements by people, while catastrophic flooding in Pakistan caused 8 million movements. The report says wars and climate disasters are the main drivers of displacement and that nearly three-quarters of the world's displaced people live in 10 countries, including Syria, Afghanistan, Sudan, and Ukraine. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Odessa. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street for a second day in a row. The Dow lost 221 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Maura Healey's appointees to the MBTA Board of Directors are asking questions about the authority's finances. Former Lynn Mayor and new board member Thomas McGee is requesting 20 years of financial data on budget shortfalls. The MBTA's next budget has a $366 million deficit. McGee says he was told by staff that the T is still carrying as much as a $1 billion debt from the big dig. The state of Massachusetts is reimbursing residents who had their Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program benefits stolen last year. The SNAP benefits were stolen through skimming, phishing, and other electronic-based methods between April and September. Starting tomorrow, the state will issue one-time retroactive replacement payments. Celtics need to win tonight or their season is done. They take on the 76ers in Philadelphia in Game 6 of their Eastern Conference semifinal. Philly leads the best-of-seven series three games to two. Here's WBOR's Fausto Menard. The Celtics will need a much better effort tonight. 
Philadelphia shocked the Celtics and their fans in their win at the Garden on Tuesday. The Sixers made over 50% of their shots, while the Seas made just under 40%. Philadelphia also grabbed more rebounds than Boston. The Celtics roster looks healthy, with everyone available to play tonight. Philadelphia center and league MVP Joel Embiid is once again listed as questionable with a sprained knee, but he's played the last four games and has been a factor despite the injury. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. It's 534 and the forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Catchlight Painting, committed to enhancing new and historic homes with a thoughtful approach to interior and exterior painting. More at catchlightpainting.com. And MFS, their active 360-degree approach, combines long-term investing with actionable insights and resources. Visit mfs.com slash active360. Windy and still warm, 76 degrees now in the Boston area. Should fall only as far as 56 tonight, partly cloudy and fairly dry overnight. Tomorrow, a lot like today. Sunshine and clouds both, some gusty winds. Should be up around 82 degrees, so warm once again. And then the sunshine should grace us through the weekend. Temperatures about 80 on Saturday, pulling back to the upper 60s on Mother's Day on Sunday. This is WBUR. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Scripps News, committed to objective reporting that illuminates and informs the whole story. Available live with a TV antenna or streaming device. More at scrippsnews.com forward slash TV. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A farce, a disaster, a word that rhymes with hit show. Some of the kinder reviews from media observers for last night's live CNN town hall with Donald Trump, in which the former president of the United States and current GOP frontrunner for 2024 lied repeatedly and talked over moderator Caitlin Collins. Can I talk? Yeah, what's you the mind? answer? Can I, do you mind? I would like for you to answer the question. Okay, it's very simple to answer. That's why I asked it. It's very simple to You are a nasty person, I'll tell you. Well, John Ralston, CEO of the Nevada Independent, was watching as the interview unfolded, he tweeted, I am so sad, and in all caps, sigh. This morning, he also tweeted, it was right to try even if it failed. John Ralston, welcome. Hi there. Hi. So you defend CNN's decision to put this on air and do it live. Why was it right to try? Well, I really don't understand the criticisms of those who say it wasn't. Uh, I mean, whatever you think of Donald Trump, and yes, he is a pathological liar, he's also the Republican frontrunner. And so you should, of course, try to interview him. Whether that was the right format, and how it was executed is a different issue. Yeah, as you know, a lot of the criticism has been about the format, the decision to do this live when it's harder to fact check with a live audience, in this case, stacked with Trump supporters who cheered and applauded him, as we just heard. How did that contribute? Well, having a live audience for a debate in a presidential race or to interview a president is a terrible idea, in my opinion, all the time. But you knew that going in. If that was the deal that CNN agreed to, so be it. So, But again, you know do that- you have to try to do it live? I've interviewed plenty of folks in Trump's orbit, and the furious pace of falsehoods is really challenging to fact check in real time. If you stop and fact check everything, you're never going to get to your next question, and then you've lost control. Well, 
you and I have a slight disagreement there. I spent a lot of my career interviewing people live, and I liked doing things live. Now, there's no one like Donald Trump, but I've interviewed other presidential candidates who are very difficult to interview because they're very good at answering the question they want to answer and not the question that you ask them. But you have to call them on that and you have to be willing to stop them. And the bottom line is, if it's live, you can't be accused afterwards of deceptive editing. You and I both know that the position Caitlin Collins was in last night was an incredibly difficult one. She did her best at times, but I really think that you can stop him at every lie. Yes, you might get fewer questions, but so be it. Uh, that, that is your job. Um, CNN has put out a statement praising Caitlin Collins. It said, and I quote, she followed up and fact-checked President Trump in real time to arm voters with crucial information about his positions. My question to you, John Ralston, did we get crucial information here in your view? Revelations that advance our knowledge of Trump's policies or positions? I think sadly the answer to that is mostly no. Uh, there was quote-unquote news made because of some of the things that he said on abortion and on Ukraine, but that is more to be used by his political opponents and ads. We already knew his position on Ukraine and on, on abortion, although he, 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 his position on, on the federal ban was interesting in that he has no position. Yeah. Um, to circle back, you said, look, you can't ignore him. I'm paraphrasing, but he's the front runner for president. The next time around, you have to interview him. Is there a point where you would draw a line and say, actually, no, this person should not be given airtime because that interview, no matter how skillfully it's done, is going to yield more misinformation than truth? Very, very difficult question, Mary Louise, and, and, and I don't think there's an easy answer. But the only reason that, that you should never turn it down is you have full faith that the person doing the interview is as prepared as can be. And you know better than anybody that preparation is huge for any kind of interview and being able to listen to what the interviewee is saying and, and interrupt if necessary, call that person out. Say that it's misinformation. That's our job to try to elicit information. However you do that, I think you have to have a strategy. I didn't see that. John Ralston, CEO of the Nevada Independent. Thank you. Welcome. This weekend, Baltimore hosts the 2023 National Elementary School Chess Championships. And this year, the team from George B. Weatherby Elementary School in Hampton, Maine, is getting special attention. That's because it's led by David Bishop. He's the school's part-time chess coach and full-time custodian, a job he picked up after early retirement from his previous job in telecommunications. I stumbled upon the custodial job through a classmate who I graduated with. And uh, I decided to give it a try. And that's when I discovered the chess club. Not surprisingly, Bishop's story has drawn parallels to the hit show, The Queen's Gambit. We got a chance today to speak with Bishop and one of his chess students, 11-year-old Avery Zhang, who was catching a flight, so it's a little noisy when Avery speaks. Here's Bishop explaining what drew him to coaching chess. Well, it's the next step to uh, being competitive. You're going from just a recreational or intramural club to actually being a competitive team. It's a very unique sport. There's a wide range of strength of players, so uh, you're able to match up each player a lot better versus, say, basketball when you just got one school against another school. And Avery, you are on Mr. Bishop's chess team. Why did you want to play chess? Because my brother started playing and 
I saw him play for a while and I started getting interested. What is Mr. Bishop like as a teacher? He coaches us without even getting paid. So I think it's really amazing. And tell me, describe him as a teacher. Like, how does he try to make you understand how to play and good at strategy? Um, he motivates lots of kids to, like, join and have a chance to become a state champion. Mr. Bishop, what do you like about coaching the kids? What I like about coaching the kids is seeing them go from, say, the K through 2 level to where Avery is right now. Uh, Avery, for instance, has grown so much that his rating strength is um, higher than any player over at the middle school. He has a passion for it, and and that just, it just proves my theory. If you really like something and stick with it, you're going to get better. And he's really taken it to the next level. He studies at night when he comes home. I see him as like a 1,500 player by his sophomore year. So Mr. Bishop said that you almost treat chess like homework. Do you actually go home at night and study chess? I usually play at least two hours a night. So you have a big, another tournament coming up. Avery, how are you feeling about that? I'm anxious because I know the players are going to be, some of them are going to be a lot better than me. And so how are you preparing so that you won't be anxious during the tournament? Um, I've been playing more at home. Ah, practice makes perfect, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. Mr. Bishop, a big picture question to end on. When you're teaching them chess, what are the skills you feel like you're teaching them? Is it more than just the immediate game? Well, it is. There's um, a lot of metaphors with the uh, sport of chess. It's that hard work really does pay off. Uh, If you study like Avery and um, you love what you do, uh, you get a lot better and you stick with it. David Bishop, thank you for your time, and good luck at the tournament. Oh, thank you. And Avery, thanks to you, too. We hope you get on your flight okay, and good luck to you, too. Yeah, thank you. That was David Bishop, who coaches the chess team at George B. Weatherby Elementary School in Hampton, Maine, and also Avery Zhang, who is a member of that team. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. As cities across the U.S. consider reparations programs for black Americans, there's a grassroots wealth redistribution effort growing in Portland, Oregon. Some white homeowners are selling their homes at a financial loss to themselves to black and indigenous residents. Tiffany Kamhai from Oregon Public Broadcasting has more. Randall Wyatt is black. Annie Moss is white. They first met in 2020 through an email. She titled the email, Transfer My Home to Black Ownership. Moss, who inherited generational wealth, wrote that they wanted to redistribute some of their housing equity to a Black family. I was saying, I do not want to profit maximize. Like, I want it to be affordable. Wyatt was emerging as a Black community organizer in Portland. And Moss thought maybe he would know of a family that could benefit. I think actually the first time I reached out, I didn't hear back. That's because Wyatt thought it was too good to be true. But Moss eventually followed up. I was like, wow, she's actually really serious about this. So I said, well, I was renting at the time, you know. So I reached out and I was like, I am 100% interested in (laughs) in this transaction. The deal went through. In December 2020, Moss sold their home to Wyatt for what was left on the mortgage, $230,000. At the time, Zillow listed the fair market value of the home at more than $644,000. That means Wyatt walked away with more than $400,000 in home equity. 
Lily Copenagel is an organizer with the all-volunteer PDX Housing Solidarity Project. The group was born out of the home sale between Wyatt and Moths. This is a redistribution of the wealth that should have been accumulating for these families from the beginning. Its goals are to educate people about racial disparities in home ownership by encouraging people to redistribute their wealth. There are complications, though. PDX Housing Solidarity specifically helps white home sellers sell only to Black and Indigenous people. But the Federal Fair Housing Act protects people against discrimination when buying a house. There is a workaround, says Willamette University law professor Paul Diller, if a property is not advertised and realtors are not used. If I want to sell my property to my brother, I don't have to list it. I can just make a deal with him. And that obviously had the effect of excluding anybody who wasn't my brother's race or religion. It's also easier to do this kind of transaction in Portland because it doesn't have property tax and real estate transfer tax complications that might prove difficult elsewhere. So we're walking into the back backyard. The backyard, yeah. Uh, which needs it's gonna be getting some work done. The median home price in Randall Wyatt's neighborhood is now $750,000, according to real estate company Redfin. He's not planning on selling anytime soon. He wants to hold on to the home for his twin teenage sons. PDX Housing Solidarity launched last year and has so far helped seven families buy homes in Portland. Sometimes the group connects people who will sell below market prices. Other times it facilitates cash gifts for down payments. One thing our country has not done for white people who actually know the history and actually want to do something to change the future is provide a clear path of reconciliation. And he says this is just one way for white people who support reparations to take action now, while a systemic approach to reparations continues at a much slower pace. For NPR News, I'm Tiffany Kamhai in Portland, Oregon. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being with us this evening. It's a must-win for the Boston Celtics tonight out in Philadelphia. The Seas currently trailed the 76ers in the best-of-seven playoff series, three games to two. Tip-off tonight is 7.30. The winner of the series moves on to the Eastern Conference Final to face either the New York Knicks or the Miami Heat. And the New England Patriots announced today they will honor Tom Brady at this season's home opener. The NFL schedule is set to be released tonight. Brady announced his second and perhaps final retirement this year after two decades with the Pats and three seasons in Tampa Bay. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, helping those affected by crises around the world by partnering with customers to provide crucial supplies to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. And Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at Fidelity.com slash fund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. It's Margaret Lowe, WBUR CEO. My mother died 20 years ago on Valentine's Day, just a few months after her cancer diagnosis. After that, the post office forwarded all her mail to me a few states away. Even after she was gone, she got more mail than I ever did. 
letters that painted a vivid picture of who she was. One from a former patient who had no idea my mom had died. Her foodie magazine, solicitations from political candidates. Then, a letter arrived from a good cause she'd given to for years, wondering why her donations had stopped so suddenly. On the envelope in big, bold letters, it said, Natalie, where are you? We miss you. I miss her too, every day, after all these years. I wish she knew I'd come home to Boston, a city she loved, to run this station. She'd be so proud. My mom loved flowers too. Send Winston flowers to your mom and support WBUR, a really good cause. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Now to college sports, in particular, the transfer portal. For decades, high school athletes entered college and the door basically shut behind them. The NCAA changed that in 2018 by creating the transfer portal. It allows players to trade up and schools to reconfigure teams. NPR's Jason Fuller reports. High school football is on another level in Texas. Loads of teens play before thousands of fans each week. Byron Vons grew up in Fort Worth and played for Eastern Hills High. He was all set to play for the University of Texas. Who doesn't like those primetime games Saturday night, you know? Except things didn't quite go as planned. Vaughn spent 2018 as a redshirt. In 2019, he played in 10 games. But in 2020, Vaughn, along with thousands of other student-athletes, didn't play at all due to the pandemic. The NCAA took notice and gave student-athletes an extra year of eligibility due to the lost COVID-19 season. Vaughn's took advantage, hoping he'd create more impressive on-the-field numbers at a smaller school. He left the Texas Longhorns for the Utah State Aggies, and it worked. He had 99 tackles during the 2021 and 2022 seasons. Vaughn's was embraced by the Aggie fan base, but he thought his playing could be pushed. I love Utah State, but another reason I left is because during the offseason, I was actually working a construction job just to, you know, take care of my bills. This is where college sports' second new wrinkle enters the frame. NIL, name, image, and likeness, that offers a way for college athletes to make money. When I entered the portal, a lot of people, a lot of fans, you know, would come and tag my page and say he's leaving because NIL. But at the end of the day, like, I have bigger goals than a few thousand dollars that I can make in college. Like, I'm trying to make it to the next level. But what fans didn't see was the emotional toll gripping his family as he waited for a new opportunity in the transfer portal for months. It was days my dad would wake up, my mom would wake up, and they, we just got to all look at each other like, it's going to be okay. But everyone who enters doesn't find a new school. Between August 1st, 2021 and July 31st, 2022, the NCAA says almost 21,000 student-athletes entered the transfer portal from Division I schools. But more than 40% found themselves, like Vaughn's, waiting. Players are competing not just for spots, but for a shrinking number of scholarships. And Vaughn says sometimes coaching staffs drag their feet. If you're a big-time player, a coach doesn't want you to leave, so you have to deal with the obstacle of uh, what a coach has to say about you, what a coach can say to other coaches during the recruitment process. Gene Taylor, athletic director at Kansas State University, says his school has benefited from the transfer portal. Well, it's been a very successful year across the board, both athletically and academically. Taylor not only touts his athlete's 3.2 GPA, but the school made big waves in multiple sports this year. The men's golf team made it to the regionals. The Wildcats football team helped bring in more than $70 million with their Sugar Bowl berth. And the men's college basketball team 
relied heavily on the transfer portal. Last year, we brought in Coach Jerome Tang as our new basketball coach. By the time he got here and evaluated his players, he ended up with just two players to start a squad with. Instead of having to build his team with a bunch of freshmen, Coach Tang's team made a deep run into the men's NCAA March Madness tournament, all the way to the Elite Eight, with seasoned transfer players. Count the basket and Kansas State wins it! Miles Hinton, who grew up just outside of Atlanta, had an unusually easy transfer experience. Yeah, I put a lot of time, a lot of thinking into it, because of course, like, I don't want to give up my Stanford degree. You know, because that's, that's like, you know, a Stanford degree. <laughs> Hinton, who stands at an imposing six foot seven, 320 pounds, was a highly sought-after high school recruit. But the low fan turnout at Stanford games was disappointing. This is not what Hinton envisioned playing college ball would be like. So, he entered the transfer portal and quickly landed at the University of Michigan. Man, it's, it's Big Ten ball. You know, it's, it's Big Ten ball. It's, it's a whole different ball game. I, I grew up watching Big Ten ball because my dad played in the Big Ten. My mom played basketball for a Big Ten team. My brother played here. You know what I'm saying? So I just kind of grew up watching the sport through a Big Ten kind of lens. But what about Byron Vaughn still waiting to hear back in Utah? Well, just days before having to compete in the May transfer portal, Vaughn took to Twitter saying, I'm blessed to say I'll be back playing my last season back home in Texas. I'm a Baylor Bear, baby. Jason Fuller, NPR News. Hollywood writers are on their second week of striking against major studios, including Netflix, Paramount, and Warner Brothers. As NPR's Mandalit Del Barco reports, there was a special picket line yesterday where writers looking for a new contract were also looking for love. Outside Universal Studios, hundreds of TV and film writers waved picket signs and flirted during a singles meetup called Strike Up a Romance. This would be the perfect time to write a rom-com, though, of, like, love on the picket line. Alex Bloom says before the strike, she was writing for the new comedy series The Pradeeps of Pittsburgh. I actually was just dumped three weeks ago by my boyfriend. Yes, he randomly dumped me, and then my career randomly dumped me, so I'm out here using all of that energy to strike for what we deserve. Haley Boston had been developing a horror show for Netflix. She carried a sign that said, single and ready to be paid fairly. People often caution you against dating another writer, but I think it's bleak times out there, so I would love to find someone who is in the same boat as I am. The event's organizers, members of the Writers Guild of America, said the work stoppage means writers can no longer say they're too busy to date. They offered strikers breathments and advice from a professional matchmaker who's also a TV writer. Among those out protesting the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers was Augustus Schiff, who wrote for the animated sitcom Big Mouth. I've been single for four years, so I'm thinking it'd be a very nice side effect of uh, being out here and expressing my distaste for the AMPTP's deal. Writer Julie Greiner was also there with her friend Amelia Elizalde, both of them writers for Stephen Colbert Presents Tuning Out the News. Have you heard any good picket line, pickup lines yet? Oh, you know what? I I hope that someone will approach me with one. I feel like that's kind of the idea. There's been a lot of like lingering looks, loaded glances, I would yeah, say. Are, yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's mostly with the eyes. For now, it's very Pride and Prejudice. Some of the writers were inspired by one couple protesting with them yesterday. During the last writer's strike in 2007, Hunter Covington organized a singles event on the picket line in front of Fox Studios. That's where he met Stacy Traub. I was on a show called Notes from the Underbelly that I was running. I was on a show called My Name is Earl. 
We're both comedy writers. We were both on strike. We bonded about some funny things that you won't want to air. But we, we, got each other. we got each other. They're both showrunners now with four children, and they celebrated their 10th wedding anniversary by picketing once again. The upside of the strike was that we found each other. Well, I think it's all about, like, finding hope during the strike. After picketing all afternoon, the writers moved to a nearby taco joint for drinks. It's unclear how many matches were made, but the event was such a hit, they may keep mingling throughout the strike. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. From Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people achieve quality sleep. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. From Your Part-Time Controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your Part-Time Controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is 90.9. WBUR is partnering with Winston Flowers so you can send the perfect Mother's Day gift and support our independent journalism. Save 10% until midnight tonight and choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the How God Works podcast. Boston Live taping May 15th. Explore Gen Z's collapsing happiness and how ancient wisdom can help. HowGodWorks.org. And A Street Frames. 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Tonight, pandemic restrictions for asylum seekers to the U.S. are set to expire. Communities along the southern border are seeing huge crowds as migrants line up to apply for authorized status in the U.S. Concerns along the border coming up on this Thursday, May 11th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, a Florida psychologist says her patients who are transgender are feeling the pressure of new state laws that curb transgender rights. I'm seeing a lot more anxiety, depression. Things I hear patients say are, the government doesn't want me to exist. They don't feel safe. Coming up, the story of one teenager who fled the state. Also, why some hammerhead sharks hold their breath when they make deep dives. And 40 years of Weird Al Yankovic. This is WBUR at 601. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Ahead of tonight's deadline for pandemic-era asylum restrictions, people from Mexico and throughout Central and South America have been rushing to the border, hoping to enter the U.S. 
Migrants were shedding clothing before swimming across the Rio Grande, clutching plastic bags filled with their clothes and possessions. Many surrendered immediately, hoping to be released while pursuing their cases in immigration court. But Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas reiterated those trying to get into the U.S. illegally will be turned away. Our borders are not open. People who cross our border unlawfully and without a legal basis to remain will be pr promptly processed and removed. Many are hoping to beat new tougher rules set to take effect. This week, the number of people caught crossing the southern border illegally surpassed 10,000 a day. The U.S. and mostly Western countries have backed a resolution in the U.N. Human Rights Council to condemn abuses in Sudan. The resolution barely passed in the divided council. It gives Geneva-based U.N. body a larger role to play. More from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. The U.N. Human Rights Chief says both sides in the conflict in Sudan have been trampling on international law. And U.S. Ambassador Michelle Taylor adds it was time for the U.N. Human Rights Council to act. The devastating human rights and humanitarian consequences of renewed conflict in Sudan over the past four weeks are truly heart-wrenching. We needed to act with urgency because of the enormous gravity of suffering of the people of Sudan today. The resolution gives the Human Rights Council more powers to monitor abuses in Sudan. African and Arab states voted no or abstained. Sudan's ambassador called this an internal matter. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. The FDIC has unveiled a plan to recover the cost of backstopping uninsured deposits at two failed banks. NPR Scott Horsley reports much of the cost will be paid by the nation's biggest banks. Ordinarily, the FDIC only guarantees deposits up to a quarter million dollars per account. But when Silicon Valley and Signature Banks collapsed in March, the government decided to cover all of their deposits, most of which were uninsured, in order to discourage a more widespread run on other banks. That decision cost the government's deposit insurance fund an estimated $15.8 billion. The FDIC wants to recover that money with a special assessment on uninsured deposits at other big banks. The lion's share of the bill would be paid by the nation's largest banks, while banks with under $5 billion in assets would be exempt. If approved, the bank payments would be spread over two years, beginning in early 2024. Scott Horsley, NPR News. Washington. number of people filing first-time jobless claims took a bump up this week, rising to its highest level since 2021. Applications for unemployment benefits for the week ending May 6 rose by 22,000. A mixed close on Wall Street today. The Dow fell 221 points. The Nasdaq rose 22 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The state of Massachusetts has to take another look at the qualifications of half of the recipients of the state's Medicaid program, Mass Health, after the federal pandemic coverage rules expired in March. 70,000 state households have requested their eligibility be redetermined. The process began six weeks ago and runs through next April. State officials estimate that up to 400,000 people could lose their mass health benefits. Drivers traveling across the Cape Cod Canal might find their commute a little bit easier this evening. The Army Corps of Engineers is removing lane restrictions that have clogged the Sagamore Bridge for weeks. WBR's Andrea Perdomo Hernandez has more. Only two of the bridge's four lanes have been open to traffic since March 1st. Three phases of repairs were set to be completed by Memorial Day weekend. The Army Corps of Engineers, which operates the bridge, says the repair work is done two weeks ahead of schedule. Crews are removing construction equipment, but the Corps in a statement says all travel lanes are now open. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez.
One of the founders of Spare Change News has died. James Shearer helped start the newspaper in the 1990s. He was also the publication board's president. Low-income individuals and people experiencing homelessness can buy the newspaper themselves for 50 cents and are allowed to resell it for $2 and keep the profit. Shearer was once homeless himself. He died Sunday at the age of 64 of complications from diabetes and other health issues. And researchers at Boston University have developed a digital tool to help identify a person's risk for Parkinson's disease before symptoms appear. The BU researchers worked with Australian scientists and used artificial intelligence to identify unique chemical markers in blood samples from healthy adults who develop Parkinson's 15 years later. The researchers caution larger studies are needed. Typically, the central nervous system disorder can only be diagnosed after symptoms are noticeable. A warm evening on the gray side, sporadic showers. Tonight should be partly cloudy and warm, only falling to the mid-50s overnight. Then tomorrow, sunshine and clouds again, maybe some afternoon rain. Strong winds, highs could break 80 degrees tomorrow. Sunny and warm on Saturday, sunny and cooler on Sunday. WBUR supporters include ECMC Foundation, working to improve post-secondary educational outcomes for underserved students through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org. On a Thursday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. The end of the pandemic health order Title 42 is hours away. Cities along the southwest border have been preparing for months for this day. In El Paso, Texas, hundreds of migrants seeking asylum have been lining up at the border, waiting to turn themselves in to Border Patrol agents. Angela Kacherga with member station KTEP joins us now from El Paso. Angela, tell us the scene there now in El Paso where you are. Well, Sasha, I was at the border where people are waiting, and I saw the process unfold. Border Patrol agents opened a gate in the big towering steel fence, and a line of weary people walked through from the Mexican side. I talked to Agent Fidel Baca, who says there's a steady flow of new arrivals. We're doing our best to get everybody out of here. At any given point in time where you show up here and you look over, you're going to see a multitude of people. Now, the group I saw included men and women, parents and children holding hands, and most people are from South America. They walk toward a waiting white bus to take them to a Border Patrol processing center. And Border Patrol estimates there's about 65,000 people waiting all along the border in Mexico, but we really don't know exactly how many. I talked to a migrant who arrived at the border a couple of weeks ago, and others have been waiting in Mexico far longer. With all these people arriving and preparing for the end of this so they can cross over, how is El Paso managing these large numbers of people? Well, the city and the county and local nonprofit organizations say they're ready. They've been through this before. Back in December, when Title 42 was supposed to end, 1,800 migrants a day were turning themselves into Border Patrol in El Paso. And right now we're seeing about 1,100, so that's a lower number. Now, the city has turned two vacant schools into temporary shelters. Churches and nonprofit groups are also providing shelter and food for migrants. And the county has a center to help coordinate travel for people who have sponsors or relatives elsewhere in the U.S. And, of course, the vast majority of migrants do move on. Angela, Border Patrol has said that it will carry out targeted enforcement. What does that mean? Well, we did hear about that earlier this week and El Paso Border Patrol agents went downtown and handed out flyers to a crowd of migrants who had been sleeping outside a church. And they urged those people in the flyer if they had not been processed by immigration authorities to do so right away and use a legal pathway or they'd risk being picked up and deported. 
Now, this mother from Venezuela, who only gave her first name as Ildrani, said after careful consideration, her family decided to go through with the processing. So she, along with her husband and 13-year-old daughter, they were among an estimated 500 migrants who lined up outside a border patrol station in downtown El Paso this week, and they were processed, released, and given an immigration court date. Hers was for next summer. And the crowd at the church has dwindled from about 1,000 people on Monday to just a few dozen people right now. You've been describing the situation in El Paso. What about the rest of the border? Well, we're hearing that along the California border, we're, they're also seeing people camped out waiting to turn themselves into Border Patrol agents. And volunteers there are handing out food and water on the Mexican side. And Border Patrol also handed out water to people in line to come into the country. Now, many are from Latin America. We're hearing some are from West Africa. And volunteers are also helping charge cell phones for the migrants. And people waiting to cross into Arizona, well, those cell phones are also very important. They are using the phones to apply for appointments via the CBP-1 app. It's now the primary way for migrants to make appointments if they want to seek asylum. Now, U.S. Customs and Border Protection is advising that the international bridges will not receive people seeking asylum. Those who don't have appointments will be turned away. And, of course, we've heard from migrants that that app has problems. Secretary Mayorkas, in a press conference today, said they're expanding the app to 1,000 appointments a day. But the problem, he said, is they don't have enough asylum officers to meet with migrants. Angela, in maybe 30 seconds, could you give us a sort of an overview of, of what is it? what is the significance of ending Title 42? Well, this really is a watershed moment for the southern border. The pandemic health order imposed more than three years ago became a de facto immigration enforcement tool. And here where I am in El Paso, Texas, a city and across the border in Juarez, these are major uh, migration corridors and this has become the site of a humanitarian crisis. And so people are waiting. The question now, what happens after the clock strikes midnight? That's Angela Cacherga with member station KTEP reporting from El Paso. Thank you. Thank you. As conservative states continue to pass laws targeting transgender rights, some trans people are deciding to leave. Stephanie Colombini at member station WUSF has the story of one teenager who decided to flee Florida in the middle of the school year to start a new life more than a thousand miles from home. Josie's 16. She's at home in St. Augustine, sifting through her bedroom closet with her mom, Sarah. Remember this dress? When's the last time you wore it? Homecoming. High school homecoming. Winter homecoming. <laughs> Dresses, cardigans, overalls, each bring back a memory. Oh my God, this is one of my favorite dresses. There were a lot of good memories, like school dances and family vacations. But Josie says the good times have felt scarce, as Florida has become increasingly unwelcoming to transgender people. She and her parents asked to go by their first names only, out of fear of retaliation. Josie was packing up her closet because she was moving to Rhode Island in a few days, her aunt and uncle live outside Providence. Her dog, Reese pushed around the suitcase to snuggle up to her. She has like a sense when I'm sad, and then she just like comes running in. Josie didn't want to go, but she feels like she can't live in Florida anymore. The state is one of more than a dozen that have passed bans on gender-affirming medical care for minors. And Josie didn't know if she'd lose access to the hormones she takes to help her body align with her identity. I felt pretty scared. The ban started in March. Florida's medical board said the treatments were too experimental for minors. 
Kids like Josie, who'd already started care, could continue, but she didn't trust that would last. In fact, the legislature even considered forcing all trans youth to stop treatment by the end of the year. I thought that they would realize what they've done wrong and, you know, repeal some things, but they just kept going. It just became, like, too real too fast. In the end, lawmakers let kids like Josie stay in treatment. But she was already convinced Florida just wasn't a safe place for her. School has been challenging at times since Josie came out as trans in eighth grade. Some childhood friends rejected her. She wanted to play on the girls' tennis team, but a recent Florida law forbid it. And it was painful when Florida teachers had to start watching what they said about LGBTQ issues. They were required to take down like little stickers on doors that said that it was a safe space, which is just ridiculous. You want your students to be comfortable and safe. The new laws and anti-trans rhetoric are hurting kids across Florida, says psychologist Jennifer Evans. She works at the University of Florida's gender clinic in Gainesville. I'm seeing a lot more anxiety, depression. Things I hear patients say are, the government doesn't want me to exist. They don't feel safe. Evans points to the many states passing all sorts of bills that target trans individuals, not just their medical care, but what schools can teach or what bathrooms you can use. Evans identifies as queer herself. She says a bill doesn't even have to pass for it to cause harm. It's a lot to feel like enough people in this country don't agree with your existence, which actually isn't affecting them. It's painful to see that. Evans says at her clinic, four families have already moved out of Florida, while another 10 plan to leave this year. Some older teens she treats are also planning to get out when they turn 18. But moving isn't easy. Josie's dad, Eric, says like many families, they had a lot at stake. You know, just financially, it's, it's difficult to uproot what we've set up. They've owned their home in St. Augustine for a long time, and Eric recently started a new job. Josie's mom, Sarah, works at a private college with a benefit that allows Josie and her older sister to get reduced tuition at some colleges around the country. So her parents decided that, at least for now, Josie would go live with her aunt and uncle and they would stay behind. Sarah says it was a devastating call to make. It was just terror in my heart. Like you could just feel that cold burst in my chest and going all throughout my body. Like Josie's part of everything I do. Josie will finish her sophomore year up north. She says she'll miss her parents' hugs and her friends. Before she left, she had a going away party. <laughs> Teens played a dance video game. Sarah brought out black forest cake. What does it say in the bottom, Josie? It says, we love you, Josie. Thank you. A few days after that party, Josie and her mom flew north to get Josie settled. Sarah said it was really hard to leave her daughter in Rhode Island. I was a mess. I cried the whole way to the airport. I just felt I was going the wrong way. She's still adjusting to life without Josie at home, but they talk every day. Josie says her aunt and uncle have been really great. Her new high school is a little smaller than her old one and in a more liberal area. So far, it's been pretty good. My first week, I had a streak of making at least one friend per day. Like, in one day, I made four. Josie loves that the school has pride flags in the halls and its own Gender and Sexuality Alliance Club. It was just such, like, a shock to me. Like, not a bad shock, but, like, just shocked at... This is how schools can be. 
It's just that Florida's choosing not to be like that. We reached out to Governor Ron DeSantis' office several times to respond to families' concerns, but haven't heard back. Josie's parents say they'll keep their pride flag waving in the front yard and advocate for other trans kids while she's away. Josie says she still thinks about those who can't leave, but right now, she needs to move on. For NPR News, I'm Stephanie Colombini in Tampa. And this story comes from NPR's partnership with WUSF and KFF Health News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. Coming up in about 15 minutes when Marketplace begins, nearly 15 million housing units sit vacant nationwide, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. We hear about a community college program that puts construction students to work to get blighted homes back on the market. Again, Marketplace starts at 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MFS. Their active 360-degree approach combines long-term investing with actionable insights and resources. Visit mfs.com active360. And the Harvard Art Museums, open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries, free Sundays, and museums at night events. harvardartmuseums.org. The Dow had its fourth straight down day. It lost nearly seven-tenths of a percent today. S&P fell nearly two-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq rose by the same amount, just about two-tenths of a percent. A Bill Ricca company that provides materials to make semiconductors is reportedly trimming its workforce. The Boston Globe reports Integris is laying off 144 workers, citing shrinking sales. The company creates specialty chemicals, filters, and supplies needed to manufacture semiconductor chips. This is WBUR at 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. And UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. If your mom or your wife or daughter loves flowers, then send them Winston flowers for Mother's Day and help give WBUR a strong future. Choose from orchids, roses, or peonies for Mother's Day or seasonal flowers for every month. Save 10% until midnight tonight at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Nuance. Discover how the Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, can help physicians improve efficiency so they may be more effective with their patients. Learn more at nuance.com WBUR. And Certipro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certipro.com. That's Certa with a C. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Sharks are among the best swimmers on the planet, but a new study in the journal Science shows that one species may be diving deep using a trick common to humans. NPR's Jeff Brumfield has more. 
The scalloped hammerhead shark lives in oceans all over the planet. It's one of the larger, but not the largest hammerhead species. That's Mark Royer, a shark researcher at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Scalloped hammerheads have a really unusual skill. They can dive to over 2,500 feet below the surface. At those depths, even the most sunny tropical oceans become dark and frigid. Imagine you're on a, a warm, sunny beach and you hop out of the warm water, and then immediately plunge into an ice bath. It'd be unpleasant for a human, but it's potentially deadly for a shark. A shark can't generate its own body heat. If it gets too cold, it can't swim. And if it stops swimming, water doesn't flow across its gills. It can't breathe. It dies. So here's the question. How is it that a coastal, warm, tropical species is able to go down into these deep depths and survive? To find out, Royer and his colleagues went to a bay where the hammerheads swim. We do this all in a small 17-foot uh, Boston whaler, so it's almost like the size of a dinghy. And you don't think you need a bigger boat? We don't, know. It's like the smaller the better because we want to uh, be able to lean over and get as close as possible. In order to attach a bunch of electronics to each shark's fin. This is essentially putting a Fitbit on the shark. When Royer and his colleagues later analyzed that sharky Fitbit data, what they found amazed them. The sharks dive, spend just a few minutes at the bottom, probably hunting squid. And then they pitch themselves at an 80-degree angle and then shoot towards the surface. But what's really wild is their body temperature doesn't drop. It stays steady until they start coming back from the deep. Royer quickly realized what was going on. They were uh, closing their gill slits and preventing the water from flowing across their gills that would cool their body down. They're holding their breath. The sharks are holding their breath. Yes, they're holding their breath. Remember, unlike humans, sharks use gills to breathe underwater. This is all about temperature. Passing cold water over the gills would cool the shark's blood, putting it in danger. It makes sense, Royer says, but he still can't quite believe it. After doing this study, it still um, shocks and baffles me. That a shark would need to hold its breath underwater. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. Weird Al Yankovic has been the creative genius behind some of the best parody songs ever made. Eat It, Smells Like Nirvana, Dare to be Stupid. The list goes on and on and on. We've been spending most our lives living in an Amish paradise. A once or twice living in an Amish paradise. It's the kind of fun, dorky music you're introduced to as a teenager and you never forget it. Weird Al's self-titled debut album came out 40 years ago this month, and it inspired NPR Music's Stephen Thompson to compile a list of his favorite Weird Al songs. Hi, Stephen. Hello. Thank you for having me. I love this music because I was a teenager <laughs> of the 1980s. Yep. So I don't know how we compare in age, but when did you get introduced to Weird Al? Well, I'm 50 years old, and so I was introduced to Weird Al at Christmas 1984. <laughs> I, I tore open a, a wrapped vinyl record, and it was Weird Al Yankovic in 3D. My parents thought, geez, Stephen doesn't have a lot of friends. <laughs> He's ki- kind of a nerd. I think this might be just the thing. And it, it absolutely was. It, it opened up kind of a whole new world for me. And it was a a gateway into a lot of great pop music. I think for a lot of people, Weird Al Yankovic is a gateway into mainstream culture. He's not necessarily reflecting it for a lot of the people who are into him. For a lot of people, their first contact is with him. Interesting. You think sometimes they knew his song that he did the version of before they heard the original pop song. I think that's often true. It's definitely true of my mother. (laughs) (laughs) So you were a fan, clearly. I was a fan from age 12 to the present day. 
today into the distant future. And I should note here, over the years, I have actually gotten to know Weird Al. I worked with him on a couple projects when I worked at The Onion many years ago. I booked him for the tiny desk. I wrote liner notes to one of his compilations. I'm not necessarily a completely objective observer, but I tried to give these songs as keen a critical eye as I could. He's probably most famous for his parodies. And by the way, does he have anything other than parodies? Because I mostly associate him with parody. Yeah, he's mostly associated with songs like Eat It or Smells Like Nirvana, songs where he's taking popular songs, recreating them, but with different lyrics. Have some more chicken, have some more pie. But he also does a huge number of originals and kind of writes funny songs, often in the style of other artists, but the song isn't a, a direct parody of a specific song. He can eat more frozen waffles than any other man I know. Once he fell off the cracks of the building and he barely even stubbed his toe. Had a tiny little scratch on his toe. He's taking like the sound of the White Stripes, but writing a funny song around that. He also does polka medleys. He's done TV theme songs. He's done the theme song for a podcast. You know, so he's he's done a lot of different kinds of music, and really in every genre imaginable. That's interesting. I either had forgotten or didn't know he did anything other than parodies. So anyway, let's talk about parodies. Do you have a clear top pick? My number one favorite Weird Al Yankovic song is from 2006. It's a parody of Chameleonaire's song Riding, and so the original is Wide and Dirty, and the parody song is called White and Nerdy. What really jumps out about this song for me is the joke density, the, the, the speed, the speed, density. the speed at which jokes are deployed in this song. You almost have to listen to the song multiple times just to pick up every joke. And if you watch the video, there is a whole other layer of jokes on top, a whole bunch of visual jokes. I just find it so delightful. Because I knew I was going to talk to you, I looked up some of Weird Al's lyrics, and I truly have a new appreciation for this man's ability. <laughs> to write hysterical <laughs> lyrics. I was told that you actually went back and listened to all of the Weird Al canon to prepare for this. Did you listen to everything? Well, Sasha, I am nothing if not deeply, deeply committed to journalistic integrity. <laughs> and thorough. And yes. thorough, thorough research. He has 14 albums. There's a collection of rarities. They're kind of one-offs soundtrack work, and yeah, it's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it. Any big profound thoughts after all that research you did? One? <laughs> I had so many. One of the big profound thoughts I had is when you listen to them in chronological order, you're hearing the evolution of not only Weird Al as a parody songwriter or as a satirist or as a comedic voice, you're hearing the evolution of his band and its ability to recreate these works in such convincing ways. One of the central rules of satire, of parody, you have to be able to do the thing you're parodying or satirizing as well or better than the source material. And if you don't, people can see the strings. People can see the seams, and it doesn't look or sound quite right. And so his band has to be able to recreate these songs perfectly. He's really a master of his niche. He is a master of what he does. 
That's NPR's Stephen Thompson. Thank you. Thank you. First in my class there at MIT. Got skills, I'm a champion at D&D. MC Escher, that's my favorite MC. Keep your 40 out, just have an Earl Grey tea. My rims never spin. To the contrary, you'll find that they're quite stationary. All of my action figures are cherry. Stephen Hawking's in my library. My MySpace page is all totally pimped out. Got people begging for my top eight spaces. Yo, I know Pi. It's NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Join Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering next Wednesday, May 17th at City Space for a panel exploring how to approach anxiety produ- productively. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. In the forecast, you can kick off a blanket tonight. Temperatures should fall only to the mid-50s. Tomorrow, summery again, windy and warm, making it to the low 80s. The outside chance of an afternoon shower. The weekend is looking bright as of now. Saturday, mostly sunny. Highs about 80. Sunday, sunny again, may not climb out of the 60s. I'm WBUR reporter Simone Rios. My mom gave me my love for language, a sense of curiosity, and ideals like patience and open-mindedness. This Mother's Day, thank your mom with beautiful Winston flowers and send them through WBUR to support and strengthen journalism that feeds your curiosity. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287.